This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we will be discussing the 1983 multi-platinum glam metal masterpiece, Shout at the Devil, from Motley Crue. You had to get that multi-platinum thing in there, didn't you? <laughs> well, I had to I had to preface masterpiece because I knew that would get a snicker from you. So I so I did go multi-platinum. But yes, I I came I came armed with uh like I said, my theme this season is to respect your elders, and I have a feeling I'll be fighting for some of that respect today as we talk about Motley Crue, but I am I am looking forward to it. But before we even delve into that, man, do we have lots to catch up on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, I'm not going to give anything away until we actually get to discuss the album, uh, but oh, good. I, I will say this is going to be an interesting episode, I think. Do people know, I don't know, have we talked about the fact that you and I, we do not talk about these albums like on slack on anything at all like when we pick an album for a show we go and we do our homework and our first discussion of that album happens live as we record it we don't like have these conversations outside of like uh, i'm liking it or i'm not liking it or anything like that like we it is it happens as we record right what listeners are hearing right now is the first time <laughs> that you and i have discussed this album. Yeah. i'm not sure if we ever have ever made that clear actually but yeah maybe we should it is yeah they would say no bullshit, you know, we're not, this isn't yep. just like a, a show for your, you know, this is genuinely the first time that Brian and I have discussed this album. The most we might occasionally do is one or other of us uh, might, you know, send some additional YouTube links or something for context or a video or, you know, that sort of thing. But in terms of the actual sort of discussion that we have about the album on this show, yeah, that is the first time that we have, even if it's an album that we're both familiar with, it's still Correct. the first time that we have had this discussion. So you really are getting, you know, uh, the raw reality. (laughs) Well, and it's so funny because I listen to a podcast that is amazing. It's called Maybe It's You, and it's a husband and wife. It's Greg Barrett, who's an awesome comedian, and his wife, Amira, who uh, used to be in the record industry. She And and they do a podcast about, uh, they, they wrote the book. He's just not that into you. They he used to write for Sex in the City. They write relationship oh, right, yeah, books, yeah. and they have had struggles in their marriage. And so that this podcast is all about them working through it and talking to people about relationships. But it's a great podcast. I absolutely love it. And a recent episode, they talked about music and when you're in a relationship, how at the beginning of that relationship, you are very open to what the other person is listening to and you're more open to like finding ways to like the things that they like and and how important music is to some people in those relationships but just that they were talking about that whole thing of like when you share something that you love with someone else and hope that they like it and then like what happens when they don't and how because it's right. such a like a personal the fear part and of the you. anticipation absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. and i feel like we every episode of this show is, is like that <laughs> I was doing that. Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, here's this thing that's deeply personal to me that I really, really love. Do you like it? Right. And a lot no. of times it's like, no, what actually, no, think? not that much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's really good. So it's, it's, uh, I have every time we record one of these and every time I'm doing the homework, I have a new appreciation for this whole discussion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, okay, so that actually ties into one of the things that we need to talk about in follow-up, which is the sort of you know, rules, in inverted commas, of the show. But before we get to that, uh, let me just say that we have had uh, one, two, three, four, five new patrons since the last episode, nice. which is lovely, yeah. So we have uh, new patrons are Matthew Swainston. Uh, I'm good. I might. Is it Ewan Kelly or Owen Kelly? Please tell us on the Facebook page. I'm not sure. It's it's the Welsh spelling, and I'm never sure whether I should pronounce it Ewan or Owen. Um Chris Majewicz, uh, David Donaldson, and Scott Parker Hall, who we have uh, mentioned before and 
visitors to the Facebook group will know is our resident uh, Metallica head. Um, He'll have his bingo card ready for this episode, no doubt. Scott also has a Patreon, by the way, for his photography, um, which you can find at patreon.com slash blackfoot underscore photos. Just thought I'd get that plug in there for him. And of course, remember, we have our Patreon. That's what all these patrons are. Thank you very much for signing up. Uh, And that is at patreon.com slash thrash it out. So on the Facebook group, which is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Uh, Stuart Andrews, who I think is a relatively new listener, uh, posted a couple of things asking about, he basically disagreed with our choices, my choice of album for death and your choice of album for overkill and was asking what the rules are because he didn't want to get booted from the group. And all that. He, he was kind of, oh. <laughs> in, in some ways he was kind of offensive and in other ways he was clearly trying not to be offensive, which I appreciated. Um, basically chill, just relax, dude. Uh, there are no real rules. The rules of the show are simply that, we, you know, one of us picks an album, we both listen to it, then we get together and talk about it. That's it. There are, we occasionally set ourselves criteria, like I did last time uh, with the uh, albums that change metal and Brian is doing this time with the Respect Your Elders theme. But those are self-imposed, just loose themes that we use to help us Correct. choose albums. They are, you know, we don't restrict ourselves to choosing the most popular album by an artist or the least popular album by an artist or the first album by an artist. You know, there are no restrictions like that. Uh, It really is. The whole point of this podcast is to just really be chilled and me and Brian, you know, having a good discussion and debate about metal and, you know, hanging out Uh, and you guys obviously get to listen to it. And that's really it. It really is. I mean, if there if there's one quote unquote rule, it's basically the rule that everyone should live by, which is don't be a dick. Right. So yeah, if yeah. you if you are thinking of posting something and you're wondering like, oh, how are people going to react to this? Just ask yourself like, if I read this back to myself, do I sound like a dick? And if the answer is yes, then just try to phrase that differently in a way that invites a conversation as opposed to starting a confrontation. Right. That's really that that's the line I always try to walk. We want to be conversational, not confrontational. We can debate about something without belittling what someone else uh you know believes in because we do get questions all the time about like the rules. I think uh Dave posted one about like I don't understand the rules for Brian's respect your elders thing because he chose a newer overkill album as opposed to an older overkill album and and so, yeah, so, I mean, we're happy to jump in and talk about that stuff, you know, and as Anthony said, it's a, it's a loose theme for me. It's about bands that I think this season who maybe don't get the credit they deserve in the metal landscape or have been overlooked in certain eras of metal. And so that's kind of my guiding theme, but there's no hard and fast rules that I set down of it has to be their best selling album or it has to be their first album or it has to be, it's really just like, hey, here's bands that I think we should talk about because I'm, I feel like they don't get the respect that they deserve. Right. Yeah. And that kind of, again, ties into the whole ethos of the show, which is just to, you know, have fun and hang out the moment it starts to feel like, I mean, I know we jokingly call it homework, but the moment this show (laughs) starts to feel like a real job, you know, is we're probably doing it wrong. Uh, (laughs) Correct. Yeah, totally. So, uh, few other things. Uh, I mentioned him a minute ago, Chris Majewicz, new patron. Thank you very much. He also uh, wrote in, remember last time in the Entombed episode, I was saying that it was the review in Kerrang! that got me to uh, pick up the album, that encouraged me to pick up the album. And I couldn't remember who had written it. I, I hadn't seen it, couldn't find it online. Well, turns out that Chris actually has all his old copies of Kerrang! 
that's so awesome. From the 90s, for fuck's sake, and scanned the review for us and sent it to us. I put it on the Facebook page. Go and find the Entombed thread, and it's in there. Um, wow. I mean, what are just waves of nostalgia, man. Uh, Dude, re- so amazing. The review was by Morat, uh, not Jason Arnup, as I suspected, but... Uh, Jason Arnold used to do the monthly death metal roundup called Death Vine. So, you know, that's probably why I was thinking that it was him. Uh, but Morat was uh, an old school reviewer, uh, you know, loved his motorhead and sort of nwobum and what have you. And also, you know, liked a bit of good old solid death metal. So, uh, and it was, the review was largely as I remembered it. I got the exact wording of the, of the one bit that I tried to quote wrong, but I got the sentiment right. The exact wording was, it is quite simply one of the heaviest records I've ever heard, which is, you know, close enough to what I'd remembered. Um, sure. And is absolutely true. So thanks very much for that, Chris, because that was a real, like I say, just a massive nostalgia hit for me, a real blast from the past. Um, well, it's important, too, to go to to preserve that stuff and to go back and, and check it out because it provides such context, right? Of, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, because there might be people today who say, well, it's not that heavy to me or it doesn't feel that heavy, you know, given the stuff I'm currently listening to and all that other kind of stuff. And it's important to see where how that was perceived at the time, you yeah, know, and where totally. it fit in the landscape at the time, because often when we're bringing these albums up on the show, it's because we are in our forties. And at the time we were there when this yeah. stuff happened and, and we, you know, still remember like it was yesterday, the impact that an album or a band had at a certain time and how they were perceived at that time. And you lose that over the years, you know, when you look yeah. back 20, 30, 40 years, um, it just doesn't have the same weight. And so that, that's again, another one of the reasons why we do, this podcast is to sort of celebrate that stuff and remember what it was like when this stuff came out. Absolutely. Um, also, uh, I th- I mentioned that there are several different versions of the album floating around because of issues with licensing over movie quotes and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, listener Dave Richards also told us that the, quote, full dynamic edition uh, of Wolverine Blues, which is on Amazon Music, does have the movie samples, apparently. So if you don't own it yet uh, and you're thinking of going grabbing a copy, that's the one to go and get, I would say. Because if that has the movie samples, that means it's the original mix uh, and probably has the original track listing, I assume. And, you know, it's, for me anyway, it's the definitive version of the album. Um, also, from last episode, I made, I actually made a Motley Crue reference, if you recall, um, where I was talking about drummers. And I mentioned Nicky Six, and of course, he's actually a bassist. And Crue's <laughs> drummer is called Tommy Lee. Whoops, that shows you how familiar I was. We will talk a lot about Tommy Lee today. Right, but that shows you how familiar I was with this band Yeah, exactly, before. right? A clean slate going in, so it'll be... Not quite it's clean, gonna be... but yeah, yeah, fairly... Yeah, I can't believe I got the wrong... I should, if I'd stopped and thought, I would have remembered that Tommy Lee was the drummer, but... Yeah, whatever. Um, didn't seem important at the time. It really To the point didn't. that you were making, yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, so you went to see Halloween this week. Tell us how awesome it was. It was one of the greatest shows that I've ever seen. See, the problem is I'm so prone to hyperbole that I people don't even take anything <laughs> that I say seriously anymore. But this is my first time seeing Halloween. So to see them with Kai Hansen and with both singers right. was just... Amazing. And and the whole night, like there were several times during that show, because first of all, they played their set list and I didn't pull it up in front of me here was littered with uh, keeper one and two. Oh, sure. So having done the episode on that for this podcast and talked about that for uh, probably almost three hours, like (laughs) like hearing (laughs) all of those songs and uh, I want out was their closing song. 
awesome. they did yeah. at the end of the show. But they started with Halloween. Wow. So that's what I'm saying, right? So what band of all the bands that you've seen live <laughs> has a band ever opened with a 13 minute song? Uh, well, that's like to Maiden, start the show. That's like Maiden opening with Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. That's what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So I mean, I was just almost in tears. I was like, because I to me that's my favorite Halloween song, and so. And I think we talked about during the episode, like, I think it's the best 13-minute song ever created. I do remember like, that, it, yeah. It is, like, so to have and to, to have them all sounding just still amazing, right? So you're getting this live, this competent live rendition of this 13-minute song to open up the show. It was just chill-inducing. And, I mean, I, I turned a- to Matt, and I was like, dude, uh, this show... It was two songs in, I think, and I said, this is already one of the greatest shows I've ever seen in my entire life. It was two songs in, Man. and I was like, we are witnessing something that was amazing. And the, and the venue, which is the Worcester Palladium, and any of the East Coasters who live in New England knows the Palladium, it's not a big venue, but it's also rarely packed. And in this, uh, it, very rarely do they actually like section the standing room. Usually it's just you have a general admission ticket or you have a balcony ticket. That's it. Yeah. And for this show, they had front floor, rear floor, like they were expecting a lot of people. And when we got there, the line was down and around the block. Oh, wow. And that never happens. I can't remember another show that I've been to at the Palladium where I was in a line where I couldn't even see the venue because it was around the block at the time. So it was packed. There was families there with their kids. It was just a freaking, the, the best compliment that I can pay is it was a complete celebration of Halloween's entire catalog and to see everyone getting along and and having this sense of camaraderie. I just thought to myself, like, man, what if Anthrax went out with John Bush and Joey Belladonna oh, and wow. they and they and you could feel the fact that they actually liked each other because I've read articles about this tour and how everybody is really getting along and they are um really enjoying this and really savoring it and understanding what they have with all of the fans that are coming out to really celebrate their entire career. And you just never, ever, ever see that. You don't ever get to see that type of thing where people bury the hatchet enough to come out and do a tour like this and really just celebrate everything about it. And they had the videos in the background and the clips playing and goofy. I mean, they're still as goofy as ever. Oh, sure. They, they yeah, had, yeah. They have like these animated pumpkin cartoons going on that are that are so super cheesy and so ridiculous. But the whole theme of the night and the whole feel of the night was just absolute celebration. And they would, you know, they would trade off songs. They would sing together during certain songs. Like it was, it was amazing. And to have that be the first time I ever saw Halloween, like. Uh, unbelievable That's like it fantastic. was it was just an incredible experience and it was a wonderful night and the place was packed and the everyone was singing along everyone was chanting everyone was head banging and fist pumping like it's when you think in your head of like what you want a heavy metal concert to be this was all of that it wow. was great can i also just say that ha- halloween uh sorry halloween is a really technically difficult song as well (laughs) like most bands do not begin their sets regardless of the length of the song they don't normally begin with something that's really technically difficult because you know you need to warm up so wow that's really impressive man (laughs) i mean 13 minutes to open the. i was just i just turned to matt and i was like are you 
effing kidding me like this is amazing and so yeah whereas like i I mean obviously you're going to save i want out towards the end because that's in in america probably the best known song uh let's i wonder if i could pull up the set was it was it It, one that you recognized it might have been dr stein what (laughs) yeah i was gonna say was it eagle fly free or something but no but they did play eagle fly free um they did uh I wonder if I could pull it up. That would be Halloween followed by Dr. Steen. I mean, that's just, that is the craziest opener. <laughs> I, I bet it's a similar I've set list heard. on most nights. So let me just pull it up. Uh, set list FM. Yep. Let's see. When did I go? It was Halloween. It was Dr. Stein. Wow. Second. Third song, I'm Alive. Fourth song, If I Could Fly. Fifth song, Are You Metal? Uh, six, March of Time. Seven, Perfect Gentleman. Uh, eight, ride the sky. Nine, heavy metal is the law. Ten, a tale that wasn't right. So eleven. Like, so eight and nine was the section where Kai Hansen was at the front of the stage, presumably. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he came out, dude, and he sounded amazing. Like he, he, like so. They've got three guitar players. Everyone sounding amazing. When Kai singing background vocals, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then you know, Michael and Andy are. There was like on Halloween, they're trading vocals at some point during the song. Oh, like, nice, dude! Nice. It was sick. And then, um, let's see, we "Living Ain't No Crime," "A Little Time," "Waiting for the Thunder," "Soul Survivor," "Power," "How Many Tears," "Eagle Fly Free," "Keeper of the Seven Keys," "Future World," and "I Want Out." Jesus, that's three tracks off the first EP. It's oh, there's only five tracks on the EP, <laughs> dude. I'm telling you. <laughs> So it's like if you sat down and made a set list of like, okay, well, let's what do I want to hear career, on this like, tour? Yeah. Then let's, yeah, let's just cover all of it. So, you Jeez. know, there was a few times where Andy would come out and sing a couple songs in a row. Michael would come out and sing a couple songs in a row. Then they would trade one off. They did Pumpkins United was the 11th song that they did. So that was bringing them obviously both together. And um, it just was, it was bonkers. And they sounded awesome. And the sound system sounded great. Every guitar note you could hear, every snare drum, like it was, it was a magical type of experience. And Man. to have that again be the first time I saw Halloween, it's like, okay, well, I can cross that off my bucket list yeah. now emphatically. There you go. All right, before we turn this into a Halloween episode, <laughs> yeah, let me just jump into into the Facebook stuff real quick because you mentioned, um, you know, the Kerrang uh, review that was yeah. in there. Just a couple other quick thoughts. Uh, Daniel said, "Entombed is a legendary is legendary here in Sweden, not only in the death metal scene but in Swedish metal in general. Wolverine Blues is almost spoken about in hushed reverence." Uh, so clearly, people were really uh, excited about that pick. Greg said, "Cracking album. I'd never really given Entombed to listen. Just assume they were like all other Scandi-Weegian black death metal bands who do nothing for me, despite being a Venom fan. I'll probably do a pickup and mix Spotify playlist after listening to their other albums, as if they're as varied as Anthony says. So yeah, he was going to check out more after this episode." Um, Lenny was blown away by me saying I wasn't a big Nirvana fan. Oh yeah. Um, There's always one per episode, right? Where it's like, what? Yeah. Uh, Phil said, this was my first exposure to Entombed and you know, I didn't hate it. This is definitely far outside my normal listening preference. And it took several spins for me to find any hooks I could latch onto. Got to say the opening track, I Master is just absolutely grabs you by the throat. Standout tracks for me are I Master, Wolverine Blues, and Contempt. 
but standout is a relative term as overall none of these songs really stuck with me. In the end, this was an album I really had to work at to find a way into it, and lately I'm finding I just don't have the patience to work this hard to enjoy an album. Uh, which, which is fair enough, you know, It's uh, but at least you gave it a go. I mean, you know, that's all, as we've said before, uh, you know, with albums, that's all that we can really ask for. That's all. Any, totally. It's all we ask each other to do is just, just give it a go, you know? Absolutely. You know, give it enough of a listen that you can form an informed opinion on it. Right, and yeah. then if it's not for you, then you move on. But now you, now you have that. But now you your, know. Yeah. Yeah. In your sort of mental library. And of course he was extremely excited about Motley Crue as the pick because he is one of our yes. resident <laughs> hair metal fans. So he is extremely excited. He says, I have so much to say about it but I will wait until the episode. I'm a little terrified because uh, Phil, I'm sure his knowledge of Motley Crue and David's as well is, is goes beyond mine. So I'm sure I'll screw some stuff up as we go. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about that. Stuart said, I enjoyed the album much more listenable than I'd been expecting. I was interested to hear Brian invoking prong as that crossed my mind while listening. Although I was thinking that cleansing is more to my taste than this album, possibly due to many repeated listens. Uh, he said, as did Misery Loves Company, or at least their track, My Mind Still Speaks. A lot of their other music really isn't in the same region. Uh, and of course, Scott Hall said, you almost made it through an episode without mentioning the mighty Metallica. Almost. <laughs> just one <laughs> just one reference early on. I was really hoping, but then in the end, oh well. Uh, anyway, great production, great, great pod as always, but I just can't stand anything by in tune that isn't called clandestine. Yeah, well, you know, and that's, like I say, clandestine was a much more traditional uh death metal album and if that's your thing you know that's perfectly understandable a lot of entombed fans feel the same way frankly uh you know if it ain't left hand path or clandestine they ain't interested um but you know that's as i say they've that's how you feel fair enough but because i discovered them i've listened to those albums and then they're okay but they don't do that much for me whereas obviously i discovered them on wolverine blues and that is if it weren't for that i'd probably never have bothered listening to those albums because that's right. sort of very old school traditional death metal isn't just isn't really my thing yeah. uh Dijon said another great episode and an album i really enjoyed i got to know entombed as uh nick anderson was the front man of garage garage rock band called the helicopters yep helicopters yeah h-e-l-l-a <laughs> which is awesome <laughs> it's such a cheesy name <laughs> yes uh and as you mentioned dave Richards said that the full dynamic edition did have the movie quotes he said uh I first learned of this album because of the Wolverine comic promotion with the album. So I bought it when it first came out and remember thinking it was just okay. So he didn't listen to it for a long time until we did it for the episode there. Uh, Andrew said, I had a blast with this, particularly with the big sludgy sound prevalent in the first half, nearly slipping into a Caius like stoner groove at points. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. And that's fair. I mean, I like Caius as well, so I'm not a huge fan, but I like them. And uh, yeah, I can see that comparison. And uh, Christopher said, really enjoyed the show and dug the album. He said, so Entombed is a Swedish death metal band. Ghost is a Swedish metal band. Listen to Blood Song at 203 to 215. Sounds like this influenced Ghosts from the Pinnacle to the Pit on Meliora. I will. I don't really see it myself, but, you know, uh, somebody else might, I guess. Uh, yes, exciting stuff. So, and it goes on and on and on. Lots of great discussion about that album. So, thanks to everybody who jumped in on the Facebook page. Uh, if you did not know that that group exists, it's uh, facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. And we do show notes for every episode where there is a very long discussion. And then we come back and talk about it before we do the next album. Indeed. And speaking of our listeners, uh, and I mentioned our patrons earlier, before we get to this 
uh, episode's album, let us talk about the listener choice poll, because that is coming up in a couple of episodes time. So by the time you listen to this episode, uh, by the time I, you know, sort of get this out and it goes live, I will have put the poll on our Patreon page. So for new listeners, let me just briefly explain, because it, it occurred to me that we do actually have a, not a lot of new listeners who probably don't know how this works. So, uh, we, I open the nomination thread, uh, on the Patreon page and then patrons can go in and nominate one album each for us to listen to. Uh, you are allowed to nominate a band we've covered before. You are also allowed to nominate an album that somebody else in the thread has already nominated. Um, uh, but you can only nominate one album yourself. So it's one per person, but if five people nominate the same album, that's fine. Cause that just increases the chance that it will get picked. In fact, that's what happened at the first time we did this with Opeth. I think like five or six people all nominated Blackwater Park. As it happened, we didn't <laughs> select it. We got a different album instead, but that's why we ended up then covering Blackwater Park as the uh, bonus track on that volume, because clearly that was something that listeners wanted us to, uh, to talk about. Um, you must make your nomination in that thread on Patreon. It is the only place we will accept your nominations, and that is to ensure that people who aren't patrons don't slip through. The whole point of this is that it's a perk for patrons, for people who support sure. us. So you must nominate in that thread. You cannot nominate on Facebook. You cannot nominate by email or Twitter. It must be in that thread on the Patreon page. You can talk about what you've nominated elsewhere, by all means, you know, go and have a discussion about it. That's fine. It's not like this is a secret ballot, but you, we, <laughs> but we cannot actually accept nominations anywhere other than the thread on Patreon. Uh, and like I say, that will, should be live by the time I uh, have put this episode out. Uh, and then I'll keep it up for a few weeks, uh, four to six weeks, probably. So everybody's got plenty of time to go in there and make their nomination. And then I will take it down shortly before we record uh the next episode i think um or is it the episode after i'm not sure anyway point is just go as soon as you're able to and you know make your nomination and then yeah obviously the episode before the listener choice uh which will be no that will be the episode after next right okay so sometime after the next episode goes live is when i will uh close it down and then during the episode after that which will be track six of this volume uh i'll do the selection live which which i do just by random number selection i collate all of the nominations i give them all a number and then i get a random.org and you know pick a number uh and that's how we uh select what we're going to do for the listener poll each volume so like i say go to the patreon page find the thread it should be the you know either the top or the second uh post uh on that page and go and make your nomination as soon as you are able and it will be fun I'm always looking forward to see what albums people are suggesting. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I love it when, you know, the fact that neither of us would have chosen uh, Mastodon, for example, which was, you know, the first listener poll that we did do. And I don't think any, either of us... Wasn't the second uh, King's X? Second was King's X, which you might have chosen eventually, maybe. But well, probably not that album. Right, right. Uh, and I certainly would never have chosen King's X. So, yeah, you know... But that was a good one. I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and it was... They're both... I mean, the Mastodon album, neither of us were that into, but it still created a good episode. You know, it's still a good Definitely discussion. Definitely, because Mastodon were completely outside of my wheelhouse, and and now I have a frame of reference for them. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, that said, let me just reiterate, it, you know, you don't, we're not 
insisting that everybody nominates an album by a band that neither of us has listened to before or, you know, would never pick in a million years or whatever. You pick whatever album you want us to talk about. The choice is entirely yours. As long as it's not an album we have already covered, because that would be pointless, right. uh, it can be anything. It can be a band we've covered before. It can be a band we've never heard of. It doesn't matter. Whatever. As you know. many of you as long as who it's want to nominate Rust in Peace, you all go ahead and nominate <laughs> Rust in Peace. Everybody get in there and nominate Rust in Peace. Yeah. I won't be mad about it. Um, right. So, but however, let us get on to then a band that we have not discussed on this show before. The, uh, as you uh, correctly said at the start, multi-platinum selling, uh, probably by this point, more than that. Are they diamond selling yet on anything? Well, uh, maybe overall if you took about total that, sales. Anthony, Motley Crue, yeah. Let's talk, about, uh, let's talk about Motley Crue, or as I like to call them, the band that completely owned the 80s. <laughs> uh, but before we did sort of get into their uh, accomplishments and really dive into sort of the stats on this album, wh- what was your general perception or even awareness of Motley Crue? Almost nothing other than glam band, hair band, girls, 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 like, you know, sin, you know, big hair, makeup, etc. cetera. Uh, haven't done anything for a long time. Tommy Lee, you know, sex video, <laughs> uh, yeah. that sort of thing. I mean, that's literally, you know, them as celebrities, is and even then only on the sort of vaguest periphery of my awareness. That's pretty much it. Oh, and uh, sure. Tommy Lee's the guy with the fl- flying, revolving upside down drum kit. That's pretty much Correct. all I know. Yeah. Okay, so a pretty accurate depiction of Motley Crue. Then, uh, <laughs> I mean, because in for me, and the opinions may differ on this. When you say glam metal, I think of Motley Crue. Okay. When mm-hmm. you say Sunset Strip. I think of Motley Crue. And there were so many bands that came out of that area in that era. But to me, Motley Crue is the poster band for glam metal and hair metal. And the fact that it completely owned the eighties, especially in America. Um, So Motley Crue has sold over a hundred million albums in their career. Impressive. To put that in perspective, when we did the Overkill episode, we talked about how Metallica is around 125 million. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Motley Crue has so- sold more records than Megadeth, Anthrax, and Slayer combined. Wow. Okay. That's how many records Motley Crue has sold. And the number is probably higher than that because a lot of these uh, numbers are not super reliable. However, they are one of the biggest selling bands of all time. They released five albums during the 80s, and all of them went platinum or above in the United States. Too Fast for Love in 1981 was platinum. Shout at the Devil, which we'll talk about today, was four times platinum. Theater of Pain, which came after it in 1985, four times platinum. 1987 was Girls, 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 four times platinum. And 1989's Dr. Feelgood was six times platinum. So to say that this band was successful is... Just a tremendous understatement. In in fact, on the charts in the U.S., uh, Too Fast for Love debuted uh, or hit number 77 on the charts for the U.S. Billboard charts. Uh, Shout at the Devil was number 17, so it moved up 60 spots. Theater of Pain was number 6 on the Billboard charts. Girls, Girls, Girls was number 2, and Dr. Feelgood was number 1. 
And so with each album that Motley Crue put out during the 80s, they sold more, it was more successful, they moved higher up the charts, and they essentially, as I said, became the poster band for glam metal. Now, a lot of people were happy to see that fade into obscurity as the 90s sort of came along, but for the 80s, they were the glam metal band. And when you think about the debauchery and the, when you think about glam metal, to me, it's the whole sex, drugs, rock and roll, the absolute debauchery, everything's a party, all the songs with cheesy lyrics about sex, drugs, rock and roll, that kind of stuff. That Everything about that was Motley Crue. That was everything that they were about. And it's easy to think about that imagery and that sort of reputation and forget that at the time, they were also considered to be one of the best metal bands out there. They actually... That's the uh, part that kind of blows my mind, actually, more than any other. Right. (laughs) So just a couple of quick things about that, right? So uh, in May of 1983... The US Festival, if you remember that, that there, if you go on YouTube uh, and you search for the 1983 US Festival, you'll see Judas Priest's uh, video of their performance usually come up. It's one of the greatest live performances from the 80s that you'll see of Judas Priest. So on uh, during that festival, there was a day, May 29th, that was considered heavy metal day. That was when all the metal bands were booked to play during this festival. The bands on that bill were Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, Ozzy. Judas Priest, Triumph, The Scorpions, and Van Halen. That was Heavy Metal Day at the 1983 U.S. Festival. So just to kind of give you an idea of who who their peers were at that time and who they were performing next to. After that tour, they were Ozzy's opening act on his 1984 world tour. Yeah. So they were absolutely in that same peer group they were absolutely touring well, with those bands at the time right but that group i mean that to me sounds like a really typical example of somebody who doesn't know much about metal putting together a metal lineup uh, or what they think is a metal lineup really of the i mean you know Ozzy's solo stuff is not that metal of those bands i honestly would say that Ozzy and priest are the only ones that i would truly put on a metal platform and the others are all really kind of hard rock bands well, and I suspect that many of our listeners are also screaming that into their headphones right now or throwing their phones on the ground because they, <laughs> because I'm I'm referring to Motley Crue as a metal band. But again, to, to go back to what you, we talked about with the Kerrang! review of the Entombed album and stuff like that. Oh, it's I think all it's relative. Important, yeah, yeah. Correct. I think it's important for people to understand the context and the time that Motley Crue came out and the fact that they were there was no doubt that they were considered metal at that well, particular point in and time. And the other thing to remember regarding that time, because it was 1983, this album, correct? This album was 1983. Right. Yep, their so, debut was 1981. S- right. So this, al- okay, so this album was released the same year as Ride the Lightning. And 1981, that was the same year that like the first uh, Iron Maiden album was released, I believe. So it's not like there weren't examples of, you know, what we would... Well, and, and Fat Motorhead's uh, first album was 81 as well. It's so there are, it's not like there aren't examples of what we think of as, you know, sort of proper metal around. But it is important to remember that, you know, even around Ride the Lightning, that sort of, you know, those types of metal were still very much underground. They were not charting. They were not, you know, not in the mainstream charts, I mean. They were not regarded as mainstream music. They were still very much underground sure. subculture stuff. Whereas... Bands like Van Halen, uh, Ozzy, obviously, uh, and Motley Crue, and you know Judas Priest, even to an extent at that point, were regarded as mainstream 
rock acts. So yeah, as you say, it's all relative. And, you know, as we've said, we've discussed this before, that the line between metal and hard rock really comes down to personal opinion, uh, you know, a lot. Uh, For sure. The the fact that hair metal is even called hair metal rather than hair rock, I mean, hair rock just doesn't sound as good. But, you know, it's one of those things that's always kind of bugged me a little bit because I'm like, eh, this isn't really metal, guys. But, you know, it's, as you say, you've got to take it in the context of the well, time. Well, and like glam metal too, right? And right, the, yeah. That, that whole thing too. And, and yeah, I mean, that rivalry was already happening. There there was run-ins between Motley Crue and Metallica. The, you know, the, the burgeoning thrash metal scene was very anti-hair metal and anti-sunset strip, you know, sort of uh, glam uh, stuff. So that was already happening yeah. out in California. But, you know, th- there was no denying the fact that at the time, Motley Crue was at basically the top of that Oh, heat, they were huge. You know, yeah, right? yeah. There's no and question about that. Yeah. Their history, we, we could spend a whole entire episode talking about their history, and there's people that know it better than me. But, like, there was a time in 1981 where they actually had an apartment that was right next to the whiskey. So that like oh, they wow, right. lived yeah. right there. And the bands that would come into town would come to their apartment to party. You know, Wasp and Rat and Guns N' Roses and all those bands, because Guns N' Roses was absolutely a glam metal band when they first started out yep. and, and yep. were on Sunset Strip. In fact, years later in uh 1987, when Mickey Six OD'd on heroin, it was in Slash's room. Oh, it was I didn't in know the that, presence right. of Slash when that happened, uh, when he OD'd and was brought back to life, and that's a you know, pretty famous story from their history. But they were well, and I would absolutely were, put this band in the same kind of stable as somebody like Guns N' Roses. I was I was thinking that before we even started this episode, thinking about where I'd sort of place them in terms of hard rock sure. and metal and the sound. Uh, and obviously there are differences, but yeah, Guns N' Roses is not a bad comparison in terms of where they sit musically. Well, and I wonder, and we'll see in the Facebook comments of this particular episode, I think that a lot of Guns N' Roses fans liked to think that Guns N' Roses was better than that genre and that they weren't a part of that genre, but they most definitely no, they were, were a were, part of yeah. that movement. And um, But I think a lot of people w- would would sort of rail against that sort of categorization but they were there well, they I mean, did less look overt and, dressing up which i think they, you know you know helped. what since they came in t- closer to the end of of that sort of style they were able to get out of it quickly enough where it didn't become their defining factor i would say similar to pantera right because pantera right, was right. a hair metal band before they became pantera but they were they were a part of that late enough that it didn't sort of sully their entire image same thing with alice and change glam metal band before yeah. they became what they were. And I think Guns N' Roses was able to escape that and make that transition without um, being caught up in it. But Motley Crue were, I mean, even, you know, uh, I know Dave is going to want to talk about the John Karabi era of Motley Crue. And it's not like Motley Crue didn't have any success after the 80s, but that was the heyday. And you could see the progression of their sort of success as they went from 77 on the chart to number one on the chart. And and just continued to sell a ridiculous amount of records and sell out stadiums and headline tours and do all of that stuff. And the whole time, as musically they are having nothing but success, the the stories that are being built around them of the debauchery and of the Oh, the it was complete I mean, spinal tap, yeah. It was complete spinal tap. I mean, you had the the incident in eighty four, which was after this album came out where Vince Neal was driving drunk and got in a car accident that killed the drummer of Hanoi Rocks, uh, Nick Dingley. Yep. And that happened uh, in December of 84, and he 
paid like a $2 million fine and served like, uh, like two weeks in jail or something like that. It was, and that unfortunately just became a footnote to the story of Motley Crue. Because again, you have Nikki Six overdosing on heroin. You have like all, all the stories of the groupies and the tour buses and the, the parties that they were throwing on Sunset Strip. And so they were the poster child for the excess of glam metal. And you don't have to read more than two lines of any of their lyrics. Their lyrics are are just supporting all of that. I mean, the, the whole image was completely supporting that. And they were the poster band for that movement. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, like I say, that was my, I mean, I didn't know the details, but that was my perception of them, you know, always was that they were at the epicenter. I wouldn't say that the, you know, sort of, I, I mean, like I say, I didn't know the details, so I didn't necessarily have an opinion of them as being the forerunner of that uh, era and those kinds of bands, but they were absolutely, you know, I knew that they were at the core of, as you say, that scene on the Sunstrip Strip, all the, uh, yeah, you know, I think of them as a Hollywood band. Um, they are 100% that, and I and I don't know that they, you know, sort of invented or created any of the things that they became known for. It was just that they shot to the top of that sure, yeah. well, image, you yeah, know what I mean? And, and that happens to bands all the time, doesn't it? I mean, that's not, you know, you can't, I would never use that to sort of, uh, right. as, it's as, like as the ammunition big four against is the band. big four, but they're not necessarily the complete foundation of thrash, right? right. They, they yeah. were the bands that became the big four out exactly. of that, yeah. you know, group of bands and, and the debate goes on and on and on. But there, there was certainly no denying their, uh, their place in the landscape at the time. And they were freaking everywhere because every two years they put out a new album. And in each one of those albums, there was hit singles and there was tours. And there, so Motley Crue was either, they were always on tour. They were always on MTV. They were always being interviewed uh, and they and they were always partying, you know, and so they were just sort of ever present as the poster band for that particular era. And growing up during that MTV era, like they came in at that time and just were everywhere. Yeah, it was well, just it's kind of amazing. And I'm glad you mentioned the hit singles because that is that's an important thing, especially in the context of this album. I think to think about now, I. As incredible as it may sound to some people, especially to Americans, I had genuinely never heard any of the songs on this album before I listened to it. Uh, not as singles, not as part of now. I'd never heard anything that is on this album, including the track Shout at the Devil itself. I'd never heard it before. Um, what I had heard was the singles from the later albums. So um, Probably Dr. Feelgood, I would imagine, because I, that one... I don't was just like if, hit after hit after hit. Uh, possibly, I'm not sure. Girls, girls, girls. The actual song, girls, 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 is the that's the song that I always think of when I think of Motley Crue. Uh, for, sure, for some from reason, '87. Yeah, that's the one that always stuck in my mind. Uh, it was a big hit. Or over Wild here. Side that had the spinning drum set highlighted in the video. That was a big p- part of the of the Wild Side video, which was right. off the same album, Girls, 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 in 1987. I might have heard that. Yeah, I don't recognize the title. Um, but like I say, it was those later albums, that later era that where they were huge in the UK as well. And they were, you know, they had, and they had those hit singles. And so, yeah, you'd turn on the radio, especially the, I mean, they were generally, uh, outside of the charts. They were generally restricted to rock shows over here, uh, which, uh, you know, and our mainstream radio has never been great about featuring rock music, frankly. So it's not like you heard them all the time, but if you listened to rock shows, you would hear them, you know, if you see what I mean. It's like, it's not that they were on every show, but they were always on the rock show. 
Um, well, and you you figure that usually you get off of an album, you know, no matter where they place, you get like two or three singles, right? I mean, that that's usually the cycle when an album comes out. That well, over the course of that album, you get two or three singles, right? Exactly. And this is this is why I say I'm glad that you mentioned the hit singles because, uh, and like I said, this is really important for especially younger listeners to sort of put an album like this in context. And even I had to, I had to kind of rethink my approach because I'm thinking, hang on a minute, this is from 1983. And that was an era where album sales were king. Like nothing made you more money than selling the album, not the tour, not the hit singles, nothing made you more money than selling albums. In fact, a lot of bands lost money on tour, but then made a huge profit off the back of the album sales because people went out and bought the album after seeing them on tour. And that's completely the opposite of how the industry works now in a post-iTunes world, but, you know, post-Napster world, but there you go. Um, And so it was imperative for bands to get albums out and for people to go and buy those albums. How did they do that? By having hit singles off those albums. So, you know, you'd have uh, three or four great songs that you would release as singles to peak interest. You know, you'd release one before the release of the album and then the others you'd space out to keep the life at the span of the album going. But outside of those three or four great songs, quite often the rest of the songs on the album were all right, but nothing special. Uh, they were sure. they, they were filler. They were literally filler because they knew that people would buy the album just for the hit singles they'd heard on the radio. You know, that's where the phrase all killer, no filler comes from. It's from music well, reviews of the time. And even more importantly were the music videos, right? Because by the time that they- In the they, 80s, they yes, put, that's true. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Especially the early 80s, right? So off of their first album, you get Livewire. That is a, a music video. Then in when uh, this one hits, within the next year, you have two videos that basically, I think, broke Motley Crue, which were Looks That Kill and Too Young to Fall in Love. Two very catchy songs, two singles off the album, two videos that were in constant rotation on MTV. In 85 with Theater of, Theater of Pain, they have Smokin' in the Boys' Room, which is a cover, and then they have Home Sweet Home, which is probably their most famous ballad that they've ever done. 87, you mentioned Girls, Girls, Girls. You got Wild Side, you got All I Need. In 89, when they came out with Dr. Feelgood, over that and the next year, they put out five music videos, five singles off of that album. So literally every couple of months, every few months, Motley Crue had a new video. Yeah. And then their videos, when they got released on VHS, you had in 1986, they released Motley Crue Uncensored, two times platinum for the video collection. I- I'm glad you, you mentioned had- that because that's something else that younger listeners probably won't <laughs> understand, like in a sort of pre-internet, pre-video uh, pre-YouTube uh, age, yeah, we would buy VHS cassette copies of just compilations of music videos by these bands. 100%. And we would pay a lot of money for them, considering Dude, that... yes, we they, would. You know, they weren't very long. You could get one with no. s- seven tracks. What's that? Like, that's less than half an hour. And we'd pay well, a lot of money for that video. <laughs> we could probably do a special episode at one point where we review one and talk about one of the co- video collections that has come out for a particular band. Because yeah, you, as you mentioned, usually what you'd get is you would get the MTV videos, you would get maybe some behind the scenes footage of them when they're getting ready for shows or at sound checks or stuff like that. Maybe an interview and then maybe like a live track. But some of them were just the actual videos. But if you got any of those extras, it was like a super special thing that you wanted to get your hands mm-hmm. on. I remember <laughs> there was a striper one that we had back in the day that my friend John and I watched over and over and over again. There were Def Leppard ones that we 
that we bought and stuff like that. Oh, I bought so, them yeah. all. Dude, I bought the Sisters of Mercy in 87 after Floodland released uh, a video called Shot, which was literally four tracks, four yep. tracks on a VHS tape. And I paid what would it be? Uh, I must have paid like about 12 or 13 pounds at the time, which now would equate, you know, post-inflation would equate to paying the equivalent of like $30 or something for a right. video of four tracks. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, because I, then if you had the VHS, you could over, watch them. Yes. Over and I remember over. when Metallica I know, put out one. I know every every frame of every one of those original videos on that tape. I mean, honestly, I can I could literally, if I was able to sort of project images from my mind onto, you know, celluloid, I could literally recreate the entire this corrosion video all like seven minutes of it you know n just absolutely perfectly because i watched those videos so much <laughs> yeah i mean i uh, i would imagine that uh i'm sure scott will know this off the top of his head but i remember when metallica put out one and that might have been there couldn't have been more than two two tracks on that vhs but i remember buying it when it came out because mm. it was metallica's first video well, i was gonna say it was their um, first video so yeah how could there be more tracks but, but it might have yeah. been like a uh you know an interview or something like that but it was pretty bare bones and i bought it as soon as it came yep. out like that the, the whole vhs <laughs> thing so but again just for the context of crew like their video collections went platinum like that's like yeah people could not get enough of that stuff and then when you factor in the the you know the tours and everything else so so yeah i mean in the context of the metal landscape especially glam metal they absolutely ruled the 80s they were it's funny because rolling stone basically crapped on this album when it first came out however it is number four on rolling stone's top 50 hair metal albums of all time and it is number 44 on their 100 greatest metal albums of all time, oh, this Ro album. Rolling Stones reviews, they they always do that. There's so many albums like that that they absolutely tear apart when they come out. And then, yeah, 20 years later, they're on their yep. like top 50 classic albums ever. <laughs> right, so this made the top 50 of their top 100 greatest metal albums, number 44. Too Fast for Love, Crew's first album, was number 22 on that list. So Motley Crue has That was two... higher than this, wow. Yep, Motley Crue has two albums among the top 50 of Rolling Stone's all-time greatest metal albums. Wow. So again, putting that in context, uh, you know, and I think the albums around them were like uh, Exodus was either before or after them. <laughs> and and it was this, you know, album. And I think a lot of people now know the the cover of this album as the four of them and their glam, you know, apocalypse glam makeup that they uh, are all on the front cover of this album. But when it first came out, it was a completely black uh, cover for the album with a pentagram on it. And the, the uh, Christian groups at the time completely freaked out and were you know, painting this album as if it was encouraging worship of Satan. And so eventually they put out the photo album cover, but it, the initial album is just a black cover and you can barely uh, see it. it's like in raised. It's um, spot varnish, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I thought the, the four portrait thing, I thought that was the back of the album. Uh, that's a good point. No, no, no. That oh, is the album cover right. that was used pretty quickly after Instead they put the out Pentagon. the original album cover. Oh, I yeah, see. Exactly. Right. Oh, but wow. now that you mention it, anybody who has the original, and Phil might have the original, I wonder if that was the picture on the back of the album and they just switched it to be the album cover. But I, that is the album cover now. Right. Yeah, I thought it was. But I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, I am no expert. <laughs> so I don't know. I, was just, I just remember looking on uh, discogs.com uh uh because uh, i was looking up um writing credits 
for the uh, tracks on this album because they that's one of the only places I could find them is by literally looking at a photo somebody's taken of the record. Uh, they don't appear to be, you know, in the Wikipedia entries or anything like that. Um, so, uh, or I was trying to double check them at any rate. And so, yeah, that's got pictures that people have literally made and uploaded themselves to Discogs of the covers. And yeah, I thought that it was the back cover, but I'm, I might be mistaken. Uh, a couple other interesting things about this album. The album was produced by, where did I just put it? Um, I think it's Tom Wehrman. Yeah, Tom Wehrman, who also at the time was producing Twisted Sister, Cheap Trick, Blue Oyster Cult, Dokken. Uh, the engineer on this album is Jeff Workman, whose voice you hear at the beginning of the album, in, in the beginning. That's, oh, that's no. the engineer for the album. No. No. Wait, no? No. He did the keyboards. <laughs> at, oh, right. That's what it of is. In the beginning. The voice is Nikki Six doing his best uh, English accent. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Good correction there. Mm. Yeah, no, because I, I was curious. I was like, who is that? Because it's clearly, like, it's not a bad English accent, but it's clearly not a real English accent. Uh, you know, I, I can just tell that it, that's that's not a native. It's good, but it's not a native. Uh, and so well, I went on a quest to find out, like, because again, not credited anywhere. But yeah, I found out that it was Workman did the keyboards, which is why, okay, he's, which is why he's credited in the songwriting on the track. But you've got to think, like, he's credited as a songwriter on that track, on this album that we've just said is multi-platinum selling. Oh my God. <laughs> like, well, for 30 seconds of like, you know, a couple of notes on the keyboard. <laughs> these two were pretty prolific because uh, Tom Werman was the producer and Jeff Workman was the engineer on Stay Hungry from Twisted Sister. Right. So at the same time, which it, the interesting thing to me about that is I almost think of Motley Crue as the West Coast version of Twisted Sister, right? You have Twisted Sister, who's over on the East Coast, and they right. have a very East Coast feel to me in their music, in their approach, in their sort of aggression. And then you have the more glamified version. And I'm not talking about makeup. I'm talking about actual no, no. like like well, music and stuff like it, that. It's like we said before, like Anthrax v Metallica, yes, or, dude. Uh, Public Enemy versus uh, Ice T. You know, the like the East Coast West Coast thing. It's a real yes. thing. Yeah. And so that's how I kind of like I you know because you and you've got this production team that worked on both albums, right? Which both were huge albums for the respective bands. And so you have Twisted Sister doing their East Coast thing, and you have Motley Crue who are almost in some ways kind of the the West Coast version of that. Although I feel like Twisted Sister was more musically, I don't want to say talented, but I felt like they they were a little bit more complex than I, what... I would say it feels, based on you know what I've heard, which is a grand total of one album by each band, I would say it felt like Twisted Sister put more effort into the music. Sure. You know, that's the, because, yeah, it's not, as we've discussed well, before, complexity doesn't necessarily make better songs, etc. Et correct. I just think Twisted to put a bit more effort into the music than Motley. Yeah, <laughs> I think, to me, what jumps out is that uh, Dee Snyder was a better lyricist uh, than oh, Vince Neil God, yeah. was. He wrote <laughs> lyrics that actually had substance behind them, and he also, I feel like, is a better frontman and singer than Vince Neil is. And so, for me, that was the that was a big deciding factor, because you know, from a, from a riff standpoint and uh, a complexity standpoint from a musical place, like it, there, there's a lot of overlap in their Venn diagram, but when you add D Snyder and you add his lyrics into the mix and his aggression and energy that he brings as a front man, that to me is a huge separator between these two bands. Not to say that I don't 
care for Vince Neil because I do. I mean, I picked this album sure, to talk about. Sure, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so, but but yeah, that but the interesting Twisted Sister connection there. Um, Twisted Sister did not, especially after Stay Hungry, find the same level of success that uh, Motley Crue found during the rest of the no. 80s. That is for sure. But it is interesting that you brought them up because I was thinking that, I mean, there are some bands that we've done on this show where uh, that I hear for the first time and I think, ah, you know, if I'd heard this when it came out, I might have become a fan. And Twisted Sister is an example of that. You know, as we said on the al- the show where we talked about that album, I was genuinely surprised at how much I enjoyed that album. Um, yep. And yeah, if I had actually given it a chance at the time, maybe I would now be a, a you know a, a lifelong Twisted Sister fan. Who knows? Exodus, another example, uh, a band sure. that I just never got into, and then having heard them, I'm like, man, actually, this is really fucking good. Um, but this is not one of those albums. Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't suspect that it would be. But my feelings about it are complex. That's the thing. It's not. I, I'm not being dismissive, but I, I'm just saying up front, this isn't one of the. If I'd heard this at the time, even though I hadn't, like I said, but if I had heard this at the time, I still don't think that I would that it would have made me a Motley Crue fan. Uh, but I might have been less dismissive of them than I have been sure. at times in the past. <laughs> well, and pretty much everything up to this point has just kind of been to paint the picture of what what their place was in the metal movement of the 80s, especially when it comes to that Sunset Strip glam metal and just how freaking popular they were. I mean, I cannot tell you how many patches on the back of jackets were the Theater of Pain cover, the, um, you know, forget about Dr. Feel- I mean, by the time Dr. Feelgood came around, that album... I mean, it went number one, and they yeah, had yeah. five singles, and oh, they had five videos. Even off over album. here, like it, patches on the denims for Motley Crue—you saw them all over the place. Yeah, everywhere, yeah. dude. It was it really was, and that those patches were next to Megadeth, and they were next to right. Metallica, yeah. and they were like, and th- there was no separation of that. Totally, I, absolutely. I remember specifically seeing a lot of Motley Crue and Scorpions patches, t- you know, together on the same jackets. Yeah, and so it, it, they were just freaking huge during the 80s and it's there's not too many bands that you can chart their sales and and sort of chart progress through a 10-year period and see it just completely skyrocket from album to album to album to album like this did it's it's kind of fascinating right it's like the hockey stick almost yeah yeah absolutely taking off yep it's it's crazy so uh so let's talk about this album specifically then. So like I said 1983 it was released. Uh 11 songs technically, 35 minutes, so certainly as you know another one that doesn't outstay its welcome. Uh to the point actually maybe a little bit too much. I wonder if that might have been their contractually uh guaranteed oh, obligated mi- time limit. right minimum yeah. length because let's talk about padding. Uh there are really only 8 songs on this album. You know, of the of the eleven tracks, one of them is the intro, which is just a spoken word intro over like a couple of keyboard chords. One is a ninety second instrumental, and one uh-huh. of the, and one of them is a cover version. The actual original songs, like pro- real songs, come to twenty nine minutes. Um, right, and you know, can you imagine if they just released those eight songs uh, as a twenty nine minute album? I don't actually think this album would have been any less successful. I'm not sure. Or maybe it would have. I don't know. But I do wonder, yeah, if 35 minutes was their contractual minimum and they maybe well, recorded the originals and then went, shit, we're short. What else can we do? I know. Let's cover the Beatles. <laughs> and for me, it's one of those three songs, and we'll talk about it when we get to it, that if I was mixing this album, I would cut from the album. Right. And, okay. um, 
but yeah, I think you're right. I don't think it would have affected the uh, success of the overall album because those were not any of the singles that, right? You know, became skyrocket well, hits only, off of this album. The only thing I could think that it might have affected, the only way in which I think it might have affected uh, sales, would be that much as uh, you know, much as it is cheesy, the whole like first side of the album thematically thing, you know, with the spoken word intro and what have you, I can imagine that actually being a bit of a draw. Uh, because that was still quite quite rare. It, well, it was for me, for sure. Right, I can imagine that. For, you know, for the young boys who went out and bought this album, uh, I can imagine that actually really helping sort of amp up the feeling and atmosphere of the album. So I wouldn't necessarily, you know, I wouldn't like to say with any confidence that uh, cutting that would, wouldn't have affected sales of the album, because sure. actually it might have done, uh, even though, yeah, you, it's, it's a bit tough to really call it a song. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, do you want to get into talking about the actual tracks? Yep, let's do it. Yeah, why not? So let's talk about number one, In the Beginning, which we just talked about. To me, when this comes out, I mean, the, this this setting is very. Uh, I'm trying to think of like the the visuals that you get from the videos that came out for this album, like "Looks That Kill" and "Too Young to Fall in Love," are sort of this, especially uh, "Looks That Kill." This very sort of post apocalyptic, you know, sort of sci fi feel to it. It's and, what every metal band was doing in the '80s, wasn't it? Yeah, in the early right. '80s. And so here you have this almost like intro that's painting a picture of a of a uh, escape from new york-esque you know world in ruins you know sort of thing in the beginning that to me sets the tone for the rest of the album so when you mentioned it potentially being a draw for people it was 100 percent a draw for me i feel like it's a great stage setter for the darkness you know that they're trying to go for on this album yeah no i agree i mean you know it's there's not really anything to say about it because it's just the spoken words and like I say, a couple, you know, a bit of wind howling special effects and a couple of uh, keyboard chords. But it is, as a scene setter, it is effective. Now, does that scene match up with the rest of the songs? <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. Um, but, you know, that aside, yeah, it is an effective scene setter. Uh, and like I say, that is Nikki Six apparently doing his best Nigel Tufnell impression um was spinal tap out by this point let's see spinal tap march 2nd 1984 was this is spinal tap so so it was no so this came out not before out yet. spinal tap wow okay because i genuinely did wonder if he was doing an accent based on you know those the accent those guys did <laughs> in, in that movie right. um but as you know as i said it's not a bad accent but as however a native english speaker goes yeah, yeah or a native englishman i should say goes that's not yeah that's not real but it's interesting. Escape from New York, nineteen eighty one. Oh, so that's true. I like yeah. to me yeah. that that was the vibe that I got when I listened to the intro of this. Right, right. This sort of like corpses you know, of rebels and ashes of dreams. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. So to me, you know, as a kid who was, let's see, eighty three, nine. So which I didn't I obviously hear this when it first came out. I heard it a couple years later, probably when I was eleven or twelve. 
is when I first started getting into this. Um, I will say some of the ch- word choices are really weird. Like those who have the youth have the future. That's well, do you what <laughs> that particular line has been, uh, I believe attributed to Nazi propaganda. Oh, so it's a right. So it's probably a literal translation. Of, yes, it was. It was a, it was a right. quote that I think he just sort of snagged because it, it was a, you know, right, but um, that's not how it would sound to a native German speaker. That's what I mean. That's probably a literal translation from the German, whereas the actual, you know, the actual translation stroke interpretation should be, you know, the future belongs to the youth or something like that. Right. And so, uh, and I think that I'm just looking up real quick, that quote from Hitler was he alone who owns the youth gains the future. Right. That was his, right. that was the actual quote. So, but it was close enough that it raised some eyebrows, I believe when it, uh, maybe not when it first came out, but sort of looking back at it. Right. But uh. Nikki Six was not uh, smart enough, I don't think, to to have, <laughs> to have thought that through at the time. I mean, if you listen to any interviews that they did, I mean, they were just, they were patchworking anything that was offensive or over the top or, or, or whatever. I mean, just cool, the, like, yeah, trans- yeah, the Manson ties and, to yeah. Helter Skelter, like, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the satanic stuff, the, the occult. I mean, it's all, it was all part of the shtick. You yeah. know what I mean? Oh, totally. Um, it's Alice Cooper. It's, yeah, you know, well, th- th- that was the other comparison as long as well as Guns N' Roses, like is the thing that came to mind when I was listening to this was Alice Cooper. Cause it's that same level of, you know, slightly metallic hard rock, with a lot of theatrics and as you say, just sort of just picking anything that's a bit transgressive and a bit shocking, throw that in there, you know, mix it all up and out comes a song. And I'm not knocking it, nothing wrong with that, but yeah, very much I'd be interested to learn like how much of an influence Alice was on Nikki Six, especially. Well, yeah, and I think and I, I have not researched this, but I wonder if Nikki ever addressed that concern over that particular line in the lyrics like i don't maybe it's something they talk about in their book they had that famous book that come out that came out called the dirt which was a huge seller that sort of recounted their whole history and stuff like that because there was a lot of sort of nazi chic imagery that was thrown around during the 80s for sure that people worked into their costumes and stuff like that and it was post-punk yeah yeah absolutely would would be looked at differently in today's day and age for sure so Anyway, so but so as as a table setter, as a mood setter for what you think you may get on the rest of the album, it's definitely pulls you in. Right, yeah. And we've now spent five times as long as the, <laughs> as the truck is yeah. talking <laughs> Totally. <laughs> totally. It was a minute and thirteen seconds. Yeah. Um oh, dear. and here we are. So all right, so yeah, so then the album proper starts with track two, and that is of course Shout at the Devil.
as the keyboard sort of rise and then cut out, you get this riff, you know, bum, bum, bam, right. Which I think is a great transition from the end of that tune that just continues to build that, that opening. It's a good atmosphere builder. Yeah. Yeah. And then kicks right into this, which clearly right off the bat, a fist pumping anthemic, you know, shout, shout it just like to me this is where motley crew is maybe at their simplest but also at their best is these sort of anthemic riff driven rock slash metal songs they, and i think shout at the devil is a great opener well and they really love their shout alongs that that sort of after a few listens of this i was like wait a second almost every song on this album has either a chorus or a middle eight or something where clearly the crowd are supposed to shout, not even sing along, right. but shout along with the song, which obviously, you know, if you're, if you're a touring band, as we said, you know, we said this about the Twisted Sister stuff. If you're a touring band and, you know, you are out there on the road playing live all the time, you want songs like that. You want totally songs dude. that the crowd feel like they can join in. Yes, you. I mean, you. Uh, you just said exactly what I was going to say, which is when you think of Twisted Sister and you think of, especially when we go over to the West Coast and we think of these glam bands, these Sunset Strip bands. Like when you think about the clubs, just that were right next to each other, that all of these bands were playing in almost every single night of the week to packed houses. All of their like, especially their early stuff, is all that. You know, yeah. it's all that audience participation, that throw your fists in the air, that feeding off the energy of the crowd, that call and response stuff. Like, that is so much a part of why a lot of these songs, A, sound the same from this particular era, right? But also have that familiar sort of call and response pattern to them is because that these these songs were born in and were were refined in the clubs and for the, written for the clubs yeah absolutely 100 um, percent, and so like which is also I love that which is also why musically a lot of them are fairly simple uh you know and again that's not a knock that's just kind of that's stating a fact i think musically this track isn't bad i do wish it kind of broke loose at some point you've got a, sure. a double time bit but it's right at the end and it fades very quickly and i think it would have been nice to have something more like that somewhere earlier in the song to really you know, sort of, uh, lift it. Um, but musically it's not bad. Um, I would say it's one of the four, I said that, you know, this album, like many in of that era had, has basically, I think four great tracks on it and then a whole bunch of filler. And this is one of those four great tracks. I question it being at the start of the album, but you know, whatever. Um, and obviously, you know, all of these comments are caveat, you know, have the caveat of sure. it sold millions and millions of copies. So what the fuck do I know? Um, but just from a sort of personal taste point of view, I don't think, is it really suitable to go at the start? I don't know. Um, the main problem I have with this track and one of the reasons why I'm not so sure it should have been at the start is Vince Neil's voice is bad on this track. It's almost indecipherable it, at times. And and well, it's, it's because the shocking thing to me. He's got a really thin voice when he goes high. He when he does. goes too high, it's just it's bad, man. Stay. And he also is crams in too many, too many words, words in a line. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so like but and that's where I'm talking about like when we talk about D Snyder, right? When when you think about D Snyder's delivery and you think about uh Incredibly the spacing of the lyrics and stuff voice. like yeah, yes, yeah. like very uh very deliberate and very thought out mapped lyrics to whatever the 
rhythm was that they were saying. The, now that I like the sort of shrill energy that Vince brings, but there are times where you cannot even understand what he's saying. And the and you know what though? That's probably for the better because when you go back and look uh, at they're not great lyrics, the lyrics yeah, for this. Yeah. No, they're terrible. Yeah. They're well, absolutely and, and terrible. And half of them aren't even his. It should be you know we should point out that Nikki Six writes half of the lyrics on this album as well. He does. So know. I mean he's he should take the blame for how awful that the lyrics are in, in general in almost every Motley Crue song. But but um, the delivery is so rushed in places and shrill that you can't even really hear it. Having said all that, I freaking love this song, and to me. One of the things that I fell in love with in a general thought I have on this album and on Motley Crue in general, I love Tommy Lee. I love, love, love his drumming style. It reminds me in some ways of uh, Vinny Apice, who when we talked about Dio, there is a weight to right, yeah. and an aggression to the way that he plays drums. I also feel like he plays with a freedom that I feel like still keeps the rhythm of the song but there's a lot of little variations in what he's doing. And in a band where the riffs are very straight ahead and the structure of the song is very straight ahead, I feel like he is actually providing something extra. A bit of groove. That the rest yeah. of the, yes, that the band is, and, and just like the, the, the energy that he attacks the drums with, I really, really appreciate. And he's not super fill heavy. So it's not like he's, um, I, I feel like he he. Oh, it's absolutely the. It's much like the guitar work, you know. It is, and I'm not. I have no doubt that they are all good, accomplished musicians. But there is nothing on here that, technically, you know, a, a 15, 16 year old kid who'd been playing guitar or drums for a few few years could not play. Um, Which and again, in some is ways, part of that's the allure, part of the right? appeal, right? Yeah, totally, absolutely. I mean, imagine being a kid who could bring this album home. And then within learn it a within few a week. weeks, yeah. have learned it. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. 100%. So um, I think that's definitely, but I do right off the bat, right off this first song, I feel like, man, do I love the way that Tommy Lee hits those freaking drums. And so that <laughs> for me pulls me right in. Um, from a lyrical standpoint, there is a line that talks about uh, my head spinning around and around, but in the seasons of wither, we'll stand and deliver, which sounds like, wow, that's one of the more complex you know, lyrics that they have in the entire song, those are references to Aerosmith songs, Round and Round and Seasons of Wither. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that it was supposed to be winter and he misread it. <laughs> no, no. They Which are, I still uh, round also and round wouldn't put <laughs> Round and Round and Seasons of Wither are both Aerosmith songs. Oh, wow. So, I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> yeah, which uh, ironically, uh, Aerosmith later wrote the song Dude Looks Like a Lady about Vince Neil. That song was written about. Mitchell. Was it? Oh man! Yeah. yeah, I did not realize that. But so he, there's your Aerosmith he, connection. He really does. I mean, like you know, when he was young, it must be said, Vince Neil. I have no, you know, it's no surprise to me whatsoever that the women went crazy for him because the guy was, when he was young, was incredibly pretty. Um, sure, I would say for a number of years, maybe the the poster, you know, guy for that glam, absolutely, look, yeah, yeah, until Poison came along. Right. And completely knocked them off the pedestal because that first cover of Poison's Look What the Cat Dragged and I'll never forget seeing that cover in uh, seventh or eighth grade in middle school and thinking how attractive the women on the front cover of that album were. Like, <laughs> immediately. Like, there was, like, I 100% thought that that was an all female group right. when I first saw that, that cover. And so they sort of perfected the glam look, whereas Vince Neil was sort of like the, the forerunner of, uh, 
of really capturing that sort of pretty look. I think. Well, I think the difference with uh, with poison, poison uh, wore. How can I put it? Poison wore makeup better, but they all looked like guys in makeup to me, anyway. Uh, whereas uh, Vince Neil and um, uh, is it Nikki Six or Tommy Lee? One of them, anyway. It's probably Nikki Six to some extent. Uh, you know, actually, do, when when they're fully made up, do actually you know could pass for women. Whereas the guys, the guys in Poison, I don't think that's really the case. Sure. Yeah, I would say Nikki Six and you know Mick Mars is a pretty rough looking dude to begin with. Uh, who you? Uh, I mean, most of the time you saw him either in full makeup or you saw him like in sunglasses or something like that. Yeah. But he he did not pull it off as well as the rest of the band for there, sure. There's always one, isn't there? You know, we've said that in the in bands like this, there's, there's always one guy who clearly just does not belong in makeup or you know whatever well, you whatever can tell like visual wearing, styling right? that the band have yeah and they're just yeah, like he's, he's okay. never fully embraced it yeah absolutely but remember like a- and i didn't actually know this until i started reading up about the band you know mcmars is also suffers from a congenital chronic illness um yes that sort of you know affects his bones and shit so uh i think we can give him a pass for you know, absolutely <laughs> not being as uh, paint me like one of your french girls as people like vince neil were at, sure you know at this point 100 <laughs> percent. um all right so let's move on to track three and that is uh as you know so this was one of the singles then looks that kill What a freaking amazing song. Like, th- to me, this is, if I was picking a list of Motley Crue songs and I could only pick, like, five songs from their whole discography, this would be one of them. Well, if I could pick five, yeah. I mean, like, I probably would only pick five, but <laughs> but I agree. This is one of them. This is another, for me, of well, the great tracks on the album. I mean, it, beyond just the superficial thing of, like, what a killer riff to open up, right? And just the the fact that it hits and the drums and the riff are right at the same time, like, bam, yeah. right out of the gate. It just sort of hits you in the face. But I feel like in terms of complexity, this song takes a step up from everything that Shout at the Devil just did. I agree. Like, it, like you have the cymbal work that Tommy is uh, doing in this second song is much more elaborate than what you get in the first song. The uh, riff, especially the chorus riff and the the sort of twang that it has to it, I think is what sells this the 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 rhythm of this entire song. And then it just it just feels so much like that sleazy glam rock, like it just captures that absolutely perfectly. And the solo is much more complex and a much better solo than Shout at the Devil. So it's sort of like they establish the basic structure with Shout at the Devil with looks that kill. 
they take that up a notch. And I, I feel like this is that was almost a warm up for this song. Yeah, no, I, I agree. This song, it moves along. It's got good riffs. The key of it suits Vince Neil's voice much better. Even the high, totally. even the high notes in this song, like he sounds so much better. Um, I love the rising minor chord progression in the chorus. Uh, you know, they don't do that often, but it does work when, when they do so good. Uh, I love the fact that when he says church strikes midnight, there is literally a bell tolling in the back. Oh, it's so good, dude. It's so good. (laughs) It's like everything about it is great. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, you got to embrace the cheese. And I, 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 I like the fact that they did that. I also like the talking about Tommy Lee, the, in the second chorus or after the second chorus, the drums break down that double yes, snare section dude. and then go back into the regular beat. That's good. That's a nice, he does a you know, lot of that nice stuff that I don't bit. think he gets credit for. Like I, there's so much of that stuff, like, like his hi-hat work too, where like he'll, he does this thing at like 22 seconds in and like a, a minute and 12, where he like, he like closes the hi-hat, but loosely enough that he gets this extra, you know, it's almost like a, like just that, that whole, just the closing hat um, as it's making yes, sound. Yeah, dude, yeah, it's like it's it. so, good and he does stuff like that where you almost you could be forgiven for not even noticing it as you go through but as you start to dig in like i do as simple as some of the drum lines are he does a lot of variations and he does some pretty cool tricks like that that i feel like just add some they add a layer of complexity to the song that you don't hear the first time right. through. Well, and it's, I mean, ironically, you mentioned earlier about uh, Motley Crue and Metallica, you know, sort of like having spats and fights and what have you. But I actually think Tommy Lee and Lars aren't that different in that respect, based on this album at any rate, in that, no, they're not difficult, complex drum lines, but they're well-played and they're tasteful and they suit the song, just like Lars's drumming does in Metallica. You know, we've had this conversation many times. Lars is not the best technical drummer in the world. Everybody knows that. But he is the perfect drummer for Metallica. Uh, and I think I feel that way about Tommy Lee on this album. Is that, as you say, he's a good, solid foundation for the album. And he's, you know, he's not playing a million notes a minute and paradiddles and all that shit. But what he is doing, he's playing exactly the right drum parts for these songs and playing them really well. Right, and, and the flair that he adds to me doesn't take over the song, but it like complements it. And exactly. I feel like if yeah. you took his energy away and you just put in someone who was really just playing the same beat over and over and over without the little variations that he does, it would take a lot out of that. Like, I, it's one of right, those I things mean, like, where like the, the, the drummer from Oasis could play these lines, but they would sound terrible. <laughs> right. The the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, yeah. right? Like, it's one of those things where it it does all fit together to to create an energy that I think he is just a, to me the key part of right. in this particular well, band. But yeah, I, I this and at song the same me, time thinking about it, you wouldn't want like Mickey D playing the correct. Can, can you imagine? It'd be just it'd be too much. Be like, what are you doing? <laughs> or even like uh, Vinny, because uh, for Vinny Apice, like he would play over the cor- like the the vocal lines and stuff like that. Like he would do stuff that. Um, that would overpower right. a singer that wasn't Ronnie James Dio. Right. Right. But Ronnie James Dio will not be overpowered by anything. And <laughs> <Right>. so that <laughs> can complement each other. But if Tommy was doing that stuff with Vince singing, it would have completely over overshadowed what Vince was doing. Yeah. So I, I agree. I agree. Um uh my only criticism of this track is that it feels too long. And it's not that long. It's four minutes and eight seconds, which is not, you know, that long as a rock song goes. But every time it gets to about three minutes when he's repeating the first chorus, 
I, I always kind of think, is this still going? And I look at the time and I think, yeah, you could have ended this song by now, you know? Uh, and I don't know if that's because they, and they do this a lot, just repeat the first chorus lyrics. Over and over and oh, over. Right, yeah. yeah, as the third verse, essentially. Which, again, to me is that whole club scene thing. Sure, you know, like sure. Just, just people fists in the air shouting that over and over and over again. Yeah, sure. Um, as you as you just play the main riff, you know, right, and yeah, it's uh, you know, and again, you know, it used to be much more common in songwriting to literally just repeat the first verse, uh, you know, to uh, after the second chorus and after the middle eight or whatever. Um, but it does, yeah, it just contributes to the song feeling a bit unnecessarily long. Even though, as I say, it's not that long, I just kind of, you know, it would have a bit more snap if it was maybe thirty seconds shorter or something but that is honestly that is my only criticism of the song i do think this is one of the best songs on the album without a doubt so uh moving on to track four bastard Which starts with the whole drum intro, you know, so the drum intro kind of fades in all, all around the kit and then I think settles into a nice groove. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I love the intro of this, which is also basically the chorus, uh, because I mean, it's even got tones of motorhead in that, that fast section. Funny. You should mention that. That is absolutely an influence that I feel on some of their stuff is Motorhead for sure. On this track, I can really see it. I don't know whether I'd necessarily agree with it on other tracks, but on this track, no question. There's, you know, I think that's definitely there. But the when it slows down, you get the halftime verses. Ah, that just doesn't do it for me. I think they're pretty weak, unfortunately, which is a shame because, like I say, the intro and the chorus are quite strong. Um, side one as a whole of this album, I think is definitely the stronger side. You know, there there are no bad tracks on side one. But here's the thing, when it does slow down, what I think comes to the forefront and I really like is again, here's another song at about 35 seconds in, you could start to hear it where Tommy's drums are doing something interesting because the first line of the verse, it's like done, 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 done. And then the second line, it's done, 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 done. Like he'll, the way he's varying his kick drum in the in the second line of the main verse to me is awesome like he just he takes two different approaches there like right. he speeds it up in the second one and i i like that kind of stuff that he does which you can really hear because of how you know how much it slows down during the main verse there but that again to me that's the most interesting part of the song so 
it's a song where I like the drums in the song. I'm, the riff itself, I think, is very sleazy, very glam riff, but it's not doing anything special or spectacular. No, I guess that's true. Um, but I, I do like, you know, I like, I do like the guitars. As I say, I like the overall riff. Yeah, it may not be anything spectacular, but it works, uh, and you know, and it moves. It's another one that moves. That is, if I have a sort of overall problem with this album, it's that a lot of it just doesn't feel like it's got as much energy as it should. Uh, because this is clearly a band with a lot of energy, and in some tracks that really comes across, and then in other tracks, it, it really doesn't. Um, and it's weird because like when I listen to it, I do feel it has a ton of energy, but I am listening through the drums. Like when I listen to right, Motley Crue, right. I am listening through the drums. Everything in my like the structure of the band in my mind is like Tommy Lee is at the front of the stage. <laughs> Mick Mars is to his right. Nikki six is to his left. And Vince Neil is in the back where the drums would normally be like, that is how I hear Motley Crue in my head. Right. So I'm always listening primarily to what Tommy is doing on the drums. And then right after that, the riff, because another thing that's interesting about this is that Nikki six basically writes everything for this band. And yet the baselines are almost always very straight ahead and very um, sort of simple, which again could speak to his youth and his playing ability at that particular time. But I find it interesting that as the guy who is sort of the creative force of the band, he does not give himself the spotlight at all. No, I, I don't think it is down to ability at that point in his career because there are a couple of tracks on here where he does do some nice flourishing bass lines, you know, only not much, as you say, most of the time he doesn't do it. And even on those songs, it's not like he does throughout the whole song, but there are a couple of instances where you'll hear this do, 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 you know, all over the uh, fretboard bass line. You think, Oh, he can, he can do that when he wants to, he just chooses not to. And I, which is interesting, right? Because he's this, yeah, me too. I, I feel like it shows a lot of restraint for a guy who essentially is in, in charge of what these songs come together like right yeah well and especially a bassist who let's be honest you know even in the days of glam metal the bassist has never historically has never been the focal point of the band you know he's he's never the guy unless he's also the singer he's never the guy that people are (laughs) are looking at so as the bassist and songwriter you've got to imagine it would be very tempting to yeah to get really flashy and go like hey i'm gonna fucking make sure you do look at me and right exactly say the fact that he doesn't shows great restraint and, and again taste Taste is not a word that I ever thought well, I would use in context of Motley Crue. <laughs> but you just did it. <laughs> but I've done it twice now, and it's true. Yeah, and the cool thing about that, too, is that, to me, like him and, and Tommy are sort of the unsung heroes of the band because they are holding it down when the vocals from Vince Neil maybe aren't as great as they could be. And the guitar riffs, although awesome riffs, are not like this overly complex thing that is completely, Right, you know, it's not Van Halen, um, yeah. Uh, correct. And so you've got them just doing work, but the fact that uh, Nikki Six really holds down the rhythm all the time even allows Tommy to do these little flourishes, you know, to vary things up with the rhythm because you have Nikki who's holding the rhythm down. Yeah. And so it, gi- it gives Tommy a little bit of freedom too, which I think is really cool and just interesting given that he's the creative force behind the band. I also like how this track ends with that fading loop of a, a tiny little section of the riff. Yes. I think that's really nice. I don't know if that's live or if it's tape loop, whatever it is, it sounds good. It's a nice little touch. Yep. Agreed. Uh, and right. So on to track five, uh, which is the instrumental I mentioned earlier, God bless the children of the beast. 
which is certainly probably the the second most complex song on the album. It's kind of a palate cleanser, which is weird at track five because it's not the last track on the first side. And that's so, you, yeah. so yeah, like so it's like I don't know why we need a palate cleanser right. no, I, I would have swapped this with well, helter skelter and it's the only i mean it, it, yes a instrumental but it does or have opened the second side with it right, right? it does have somebody singing or several people i don't know singing god bless the children of the beast uh, right sure. at the end of the track why isn't that the last track it's the only track that has any lyrical thematic link to the opening spoken Correct. word intro why is it yes. not at the end of the side it drives me bonkers yes uh, you are correct to be driven bonkers <laughs> by that i don't i don't understand that either and and to me it's a pleasant song like i like it it's not overly complex and mick mars is not an overly complex that's not his approach to begin with um so it was it, Again, it's it's a cool palate cleanser, but it's not like this is a shredding, no, you know, no. moment for him to shine with the classical prowess and all that kind of stuff. It it is truly just sort of a palate cleanser, or as you mentioned before, perhaps something that was filling time in order for them to meet, you know, whatever right. their I, I, obligation was. I genuinely wondered about that. I mean, yeah, it's not signs of chaos at the start of uh, you know, a testament album or something. Um right. it's also, however, the only track. Are on which Mick Mars has a writing credit. So I am, I do wonder if that might also have been a factor. Sure. Yep. You know, that makes sense. Just too. to give him a credit on the album. Um, but again, why, like, why wasn't, <laughs> why didn't they do something like this or even reuse the same piece of music during the intro? Why have the keyboards and give a credit to the engineer? Like for some keyboards that really are, you know, do very little other than a bit of atmosphere. Why not use this music instead? And then you have that thematic link, and I don't, I just don't understand. I do not understand. I love that that completely derailed you so much that uh, that's perfect. So, yeah. So, whereas I, I always think of it as the, break before the song that i don't really like right okay so number six track number six helter skelter Now, for years, I was like, why in the hell? Like, I I figured the Manson references were the reason that this was included on this album, because it fits with the dark imagery and the, right. you know, the stuff that they're trying to accomplish there. Um, before I ever knew it was a cover, because, and this is the, the um, Snape gif moment for this episode, <laughs> I don't like the Beatles. I've never liked the Beatles. Um, I've never been into the Beatles, and I don't know a lot of the Beatles song. So I did not know that Helter Skelter was a Beatles cover when I 
when I was listening to this album throughout my high school and college years, I had no idea about that. And so I just thought it was a weird choice for Motley Crue, like on here, you know, yeah. like, and, and clearly didn't pay enough attention to the liner notes to know that this wasn't a song that, that Motley Crue had written. I have grown to appreciate it a little bit more over the years. And what I hence learned about the song was that it is thought of as one of the formative heavy metal songs. Uh, like it, was, it, it, is, it can be argued that Helter Skelter is the first ever heavy metal song. Yes. Uh, that heavy yeah, metal because was McCartney, invented by Paul McCartney. <laughs> because he wrote it in response to the Who's I Can See for Miles, yep. which some critic at the time talked about was like the heaviest, dirtiest, you know, right. which crunchiest song, song that they had ever like, heard. It's, right. What? <laughs> and so McCartney was like, well, I can write something that's heavy, quote unquote heavier than that. And that's in fact what he did. And yep. actually going back and listening to the Beatles original, which I absolutely did as we were prepping for this episode, it is pretty freaking it's definitely heavy for a beatles song oh, for sure. crying out loud well, and, and, and it definitely and not only that um, this is that's uh, i believe pre-sergeant pepper as well yeah and and it's like i expected it to be a much lighter version of what i heard on this album and in fact there are places where i feel like the beatles version is heavier i agree than what this song is now granted there are extra chugs that are added in here um yeah, but chugs you know, alone my, do not make something heavy. Correct. I, you know. And and my initial thought when I was getting prepped for this album was, does it meet Anthony's requirements for uh, covers? And I ultimately decided no, because it really isn't doing anything that different from the original song to to stand out as a cover. I, uh, right, and it doesn't improve on the original, I agree. I just Correct. looked it up. Actually, I was wrong, sorry. This is from the White Album, which is the album after Sgt. Pepper. So they had already gone through their Sergeant Pepper's experimental phase and everything when they made this. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I pretty much agree with everything you said. I knew it was a Beatles cover, obviously. Uh, I am, however, I'm kind of halfway there with you. I'm not the world's biggest Beatles fan. I think a lot of their stuff actually isn't all that great. But I do, you know, what is great is really great. Um, so, yeah, you know, I like Sergeant Pepper's a lot. I do like quite a few tracks off the White Album and things like Rubber Soul, a few off Abbey Road, that sort of thing. And even some of their really early pop stuff, you know, like She Loves You, yeah, you know, that's a really great pop song. Um, so I do, and I appreciate and admire them, obviously, but I'm not the worst. So, 100%. Fan, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, totally. Like, complete, uh, nothing but respect for right. them, uh, just not, never got into the Beatles. Sure. So I, 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 yeah, and regards to this cover, I do kind of agree with you. It's, it's okay. It, doesn't really sound like a crew song again yeah i understand why they picked it because it's the birthplace of heavy metal etc but it doesn't improve on the original it doesn't make it sound like one of their songs which is the other thing that i love you know when a band like i've said this about typo negatives covers like if you didn't know there were covers you would just think it was another of their songs now you didn't know this this was a cover but you also didn't think it was a very good motley crew song which i think no demonstrates that it, they didn't make it their own uh, and it certainly doesn't improve on the original. If you've listeners out there, if you have never heard the Beatles original Helter Skelter, go and listen to it. Go and find it online. It is full of energy. Even now, even yes. listening to it now in 2018, you're like, wow, that is quite a heavy song. Can confirm. That is absolutely true. The uh, the only the other thing that disappoints me about this is that famously, Helter Skelter is the song where at the end of the recording you can hear Ringo at the end because it's also the heaviest drumming Ringo's ever done, obviously. Uh, and it was after they'd done like 14 takes or something, you can hear Ringo 
throw his sticks across the recording room and shout, I've got blisters on my fingers. <laughs> uh, and I was I'm really disappointed that we didn't hear that from Tommy Lee <laughs> at the end of this song, because that actually would have improved. That would have elevated it and shown, okay, okay, they clearly, you know, they, right, get, they, they get, get it. it. Yeah. Um, but instead, yeah, it's just a disappointing cover, unfortunately. And that is the end of side one. So it's a shame, bit of a disappointing end to the side. Well, I feel like side two... In track number seven, which is Red Hot. I feel like side two starts off good because you have this thumping rhythm that Red Hot starts off with, which I think really Tommy sets the groove for this. To me, this feels very punk, this song. Um, And it ties back into the whole, you know, rebellion nature of the the first side and especially like in the beginning, like the theme that they kind of set out at the beginning of the record. I feel like this sort of reconnects to that a little bit. You get the crowd screaming at like 118 that that could be like the rebellion, you know, cheering along with their leader, that kind of thing. So I think thematically it kind of ties back in. But just from a musical standpoint, like I love the the rhythm that Tommy sets from the beginning, that thumping rhythm, that rolling thumping rhythm. Um, and it's a fun song. Does it stand out a lot from all the rest of the song? Maybe not, but I do like the energy in this song. Uh, well, okay, I disagree. I This is one of my top four songs on the album. This, to me, is one of the great songs on the album. This, and I'm glad you mentioned punk, because this, to me, sounds like a cross between Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. Uh, and I think both of those influences, and specifically the Diano era Maiden, because actually in 1983, yep. that's all there was. <laughs> Um, I honestly think that and Priest were an influence on this track. It, you, if you put uh, Halford's vocals over this track, you would have a Judas Priest track. I really, you know, it's uh, this, the influence to me is quite, or seems like it's quite clear. This is easily the most traditional Nwobum song on the album, the most metal song on the album. Uh, you've got well, and it, also all four of them contributed musically to the song, right? Which, and again, kind of you know, makes me think like influences, you know, like young band. This is what we're listening to growing up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, some lovely double kick drumming in there, as you said. Vince Neil, sounds oh, the drums are great, really good. This is one of his best performances on the album for me from Vince Neil. Uh, he sounds really good on this track. Um, well, because the the lyrical lines themselves are not oh they're nothing overly long, yeah. so he doesn't have to rush it. You know, yeah. like his his where he goes up is can't you see we're out for blood? You know that 
that's where he sort of, you know, hits his highest notes, but it's not like, it's not too much of a mouthful. Like it's, it's all, it's well-structured. Right. But I mean, you know, listen to that line, the kids screaming fried through the night. Tell me you can't hear Rob Halford singing that, you know, that it even sounds oh, yeah. like the, the melody even sounds like a Rob Halford melody. It's yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's why, like I say, this for me is one of the actually one of the best tracks on the album. So, but the irony for me is like the, for for me for Motley Crue, I feel like uh songs like Bastard and songs like Red Hot where they speed things up, I that's not my my favorite Motley Crue. Right, my favorite yeah. Motley Crue is when they slow it down. Oh man, right. Okay, so so we are we are going to argue about this and the next few tracks then I think cuz Oh, we are definitely going to argue whoever, about the next few tracks. Whoever thought that like I would like a Motley Crue song more than you did. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah, and again, not that I don't like the song, but I and I do like the, right, the sort of groove is, that it gets into. We were talking about, you know, if you had to put your top five together, this would be up there. This would be like track, you know, maybe two or something for me. Wow. Okay. Cool. If I had to, you know, assemble my top five Motley Crue, seriously, I really like this track. Um, and then we move on to track eight: "Too Young to Fall in Love." Which for me, again, one of the greatest Motley Crue songs of all time and perfectly indicative of like the speed that I like them to play at because I just feel like the combination of the types of riffs that Mick Mars plays and Tommy Lee's drums, those two things together, this speed is where Motley Crue kills it. That's how I feel about Molly Crew. Yeah, the, uh, this. <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna clip that soundbite from you. <laughs> <laughs> this, I freaking love this song. Uh, like uh, just the 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 awesome. Just the drum sets the tone right from the beginning. Then the slide into the riff. Boom, boom. Like just, I absolutely love that. Uh, again, he's doing stuff with the hi hat that I really, really like. The chorus riff. I feel like this solo is the best solo on the entire album. Um, I did and actually, com- in my notes, I specifically have on this one, nice solo. Yes, dude. But like not overly, like Nick, uh, Mick is not a shredder. I mean, he'll, he'll speed it up at times and stuff, but I feel like this, like from a tone standpoint and a, and a structure, st- like it just fits perfectly with the song. And then the coming out of the solo where he's just playing the riff and you have dun, 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 with the whole drums man so freaking good i love it my favorite i do like the solo like i said i genuinely do my favorite thing about this song is how 
uh, in the final chorus at the end, they change the chords. Uh, and you may, you know, if you're not listening for it, maybe you wouldn't notice this, but I think you'd feel it subconsciously is like the, the chorus chords are fairly standard, you know, fairly sort of standard rock, uh, chord arrangements, chord changes. But in the final chorus, they change them to a rising progression, which is completely yep. different and gives that final chorus more of a sort of anticipatory feel and builds towards the end of the song. That's nice. I like that. But that is literally the only part of the song that interests me. It's so dull. I mean, just after Red Hot coming into this, I, like, I mean, I appreciate a bit of contrast, but I was just like, you know. Which for me, like Too Young to Fall in Love and Looks That Kill, are, if I had to pick two Motley Crue songs, these would be the two Motley Crue songs that I would listen to for the rest right, of my life. Right. Like that that for me is exactly what I want from Motley Crue. Too Young to Fall in Love does not have any of the virtues of Looks That Kill for me. It doesn't have the energy and the sort of driving force that that song has. Uh, I don't know. It just, yeah, it does very, very little for me, I'm afraid. Um, uh, and then track eight, uh, sorry, track nine, is knock 'em dead kid And kind of more of the same. Which for me is like a second helping of mashed potatoes. Like I'm like, yep, <laughs> absolutely. Like, does it reach for me the highs of too young to fall in love? No, but I've killer riff right off the front. Another slide. Uh, I love the bam, bam that, you know, uh, Tommy comes in with, and then he starts to slowly build up with the drums. Like I, I love all of that. And the, another really cool thing is right at 22 seconds, when be, right before they lock into the main verse, they clap twice. Like there's these claps that happen yeah, yeah. when he hits, when he hits, you know, boom, boom. It, I just, I freaking love that. I think that's an awesome little um, layer that they add to it. The call and respo- response chorus to me, awesome. Uh, to me, this again feels like a total club song. This oh, song, rem- yeah, no question. More so than many of the other songs in the album, this song reminds me of Twisted Sister. Like, I feel like this could be a Twisted Sister uh, song. Okay, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I do like the solo in this one. It's another one. Like, if I didn't know, I also said one of the better solos. If I yeah. didn't know better, I would have thought, and I did assume until I found out uh, that these tracks were written by Mick Mars basically to showcase him, you know, doing cool guitar solos that he could play solos. Right. Yeah, turns out that's not the case at all, and you know, he had nothing to do with the the writing of the song overall. But they do feel like they're just kind of 
vehicles to showcase his guitar solos, which, like I say, you know, they're nice guitar solos, but the song around the solo for me just does nothing. Uh, again, I think there's another song where Tommy Lee's drums are fantastic, and he d- does these. Um, the performance is fine. Don't get me wrong. Like you know, the 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 musical performance, apart from Vince Neil's occasionally dodgy uh, wailing, you know, the music performance generally throughout this whole album is very good. Like I'm, you know, I'm not knocking the performance at all, but I just don't think as songs that the last two tracks that we've heard are as strong as some of the others on the album. I think they're, you know. I think they are the filler of the album. Sorry. <laughs> well, we are going to disagree on that, sir, but that's fine. Well, I'm afraid I think we're going to continue disagreeing because the next track is track 10, 10 Seconds to Love. I mean, I don't know that we're going to totally disagree on this song. I I don't have the the fondness for this song that I have for the previous two. It is kind of in that same zone, but to me, this is this is like the textbook Merriam-Webster dictionary version of glam rock sleaze. This song, especially Ten with these lyrics. To just the so debauchery dodgy. of the hood. Yeah, so so cringy, so um, so sex and rock and roll. So you know, yeah. Like I, I can't. To me, like in it, this song is a textbook version of like the glam, over the top, just grossness. Yeah. Musically, the one thing I like about this is that guitar wail, that rising guitar wail at the end of the intro. Where he just goes, yes. wah, wah, wah. Yeah. That's nice. That's nice. Uh, well, and the and the feel of the guitars in this song, I feel like is sleazy. Like it's a dirty well, you know, feeling guitar line in this song. Part of that also, I think, comes from like a few of the tracks on this album sound kind of like almost like demos rather than studio versions. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're they're not multi-tracked, they're very raw, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but this is, and this one, I think more than any of the others, this one absolutely sounds like, you know, they recorded it on their four track at home rather than sure. in a studio. Uh, and I think that probably contributes as well to the club slightly sleazy feel because it does almost sound like you're listening to them live in a club, you know? Yep, 100%. But these last three tracks on this side could all kind of be one long medley, really. They're all about the same tempo. They've all got basically the same structure and drum beat. And yeah, it's, uh, wow, you know. Yeah, for me, I, I do definitely disagree with that. Like, I feel like Too Young to Fall in Love and Knock 'em Dead Kid can stand on their own. 10 Seconds to Love, 
Uh, I mean, if I had to get rid of two songs on this album, it would be this one and Helter Skelter. Right, right. But, you know, so, but, but this one, as opposed to Helter Skelter, this certainly feels like a Motley Crue song. Right. Oh, yeah. No, no, no question. Like you say, this is a kind of archetype. And I do like you know. the, the initial, like, bum, 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 like how it opens up, like that, how, how the song sort of opens before they get to the chords. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, I guess. Um, but yeah, as I say, I just the last. You're three, not sold. You're yeah, not sold the, on the it. first track on <laughs> the first track on side two. Like Red Hot sets such a good bar for me, and then the next three songs just slide under it. Uh, right. Whereas for me, I feel like it. Uh, Red Hot sets a great tone that is taken to another level by Too Young to right, Fall in yeah. Love and almost maintained by Knock 'Em Dead Kid, <laughs> and then dips a little for Ten Seconds to Love. But then, but then we get to track eleven, Danger. I mean, safe to say the most complex song on the album? Uh, probably, yeah. Yeah, I was, and, uh, you know, if you've been counting, uh, you'll have realized this is the fourth great song on the album for me. I really, Agreed. really like this. This is a great song uh, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, you have probably for the first time on the album, as opposed to Tommy playing aggressive he's playing a little bit more passive. Mm -hmm. Like the drums are falling into the song as opposed to driving the song in this one. And I love how it's like during the verse where it's dun, 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 dun. Like he just sort of tumbles down the kit as he, as the, you know, and then, and then finishes off with a couple of cymbals. I love that. um, He sort of lets the song come to him in this, uh, which I really like. I feel like the, the main rhythm is great in the, building to the like the pre-chorus is awesome and then the chorus is the most melodic chorus on the entire album it's it's up there certainly um and i I, it occurred to me you know i probably shouldn't be surprised that the two songs with minor rising chord changes uh which is this and looks that kill are two of my favorites on the album you know i guess that says a lot more about me than about motley Crue. um but yeah no i it is it is melodic it is atmospheric uh, in a way that some of the other tracks I feel try to be, but don't reach. Um, I love the low guitar lick under the chorus. I think that's really nice. And again, you know, tasteful. Yes. Um, so good. And this, it's also a good performance from Vince Neil. This song shows that he can do strong high notes as, yes. l- as long as they're not 
too high. <laughs> Which, and an emotional solo yeah. here, as opposed yeah, to yeah. just an aggressive solo. Like that, I think that's what's nice for me is that this song is such a contrast to the in-your-face club energy that you get from almost every song on this album. And then this one is just like a well-composed song that every one of them has an opportunity to shine in. And of course, the, you know, they're uh, with the exception of Tommy Lee, three of them are credited on this song. Yep. It just feels more like a complete song. And it it uh, it's a nice representation of what they can do. Yeah, well, and I, I think I'm, I'd am i have to listen to it back in full to be sure, but I think this is also one of the songs where Nikki Six does actually, you know, break out a bit of more complex uh It, it absolutely is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, what made me laugh, which really has nothing to do with the song per se, but what made me laugh was the whole thing about, like, Hollywood being this dangerous place, uh, you know, and sort of, you know, you don't come around my town, I'll knock you down sort of thing, was... <laughs> Do you remember when Bruce Willis had a brief flirtation with a pop career? Yes. And he released an album called The Return of Bruno. Well, I have that album. Uh, oh, my goodness. And uh, it is not a great album, but there is a couple of decent songs on it. And the, one of the songs, it might even be the last song on the album, is about getting mugged in Hollywood. It's about how dangerous Hollywood is. So, and I'm like... Was Hollywood like a slum in the eighties or something? Because now, you well, it's like New York City, right? Get, where it well, just went through 70s, this period yeah, of time guess, where yeah. it was not a uh, it was not a great place to to be caught alone. Yeah, like Times Square in the seventies or something. I guess, yeah, because yeah, it's, I was just like because you go to Hollywood now and it is it's Disney. I mean, you are like walking through fucking Disney World, you know, um, which makes songs like this a real kind of time capsule because you are like, really, was it ever like that? But I guess it yeah. was. <laughs> But yeah, but I th- I think a nice. Uh, it's lyrically. Good I like as well. this as a finisher. It's, it's, I like this as the last song on the album. Yeah, I know. I absolutely think it's it's definitely the best track on the album to close with. And like I say, I think lyrically it's one of the best as well. Uh, yep. You know, again, it's not like it's profound necessarily, but not too many words. But it's not complete crap either, right? And they make sense, and you know, it's a good, the lyrics aren't completely throwaway, right? Yeah. They build up the atmosphere. Yeah, as I say, I, I think they're some of the best lyrics on the album, and this is one of my top four songs for sure. And I feel like they did get better. Like Doctor Feelgood, I'd have to go back and look Dude, at the girls, lyrics. But girls, girls, girls. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not. I'm not using that as an example. Uh, uh, but uh, by the time they got to Doctor Feelgood, that I mean, it, that may there may be a reason that that was their most successful album right, because right. I think it's it might be their most well rounded. Even though I don't think I don't uh, think it's anywhere near their best album. But um, but yeah. Any in any case, I like this as a closing song. I think it's a great representation of what they can do and showcases each one of them in different ways throughout the song. So it kind of brings it all together at the end. Does it, however, make you want to turn the album over and start again? It does, because it ends on a note where I'm appreciating what they're all sort of, what they're doing together. You know what I mean? Like, I, and I, and that chorus just, especially the way they keep, you know, singing danger at, as the, at, like, so awesome. Um, so yes, it gives me a great vibe as the album closes, which then has me turning that right around. All like th- right. this is an album that I can listen to infinitely. Oh sure, and have listened to. Like, yeah, it, I mean it that was that was kind a, of a loaded question because I know that you love the album and you would happily turn it over. Yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking of it from the point of view of this track. You know, do do you think this track achieves that um, that aim? I'm not so sure whether it I does, might be it's biased, so different so, to the rest of the album. Yeah, I would be interested to hear what 
the listeners say, especially those who were not that familiar with this album? Like, did did that closer make you feel like giving it another spin? Yeah. I mean, like I say, I think it's the right track to close with. Absolutely. It, For sure. It doesn't fit anywhere else on the album. It does fit at the end. But it is so different to the rest of the album. And it's a good track, but it's so different that, yeah, I do wonder if it has that, you know, if, a, if a, somebody who wasn't listening to it out of duty, as it were, sure. uh, you know, would actually feel the urge to go back to the start and listen again. Um, but hey. Now, okay. before we, we completely wrap up this, uh, this is a band that I have seen several I times live. I was going to ask if you seen them live. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and although I went back through my tickets and I could only find the latter ones um, from the Dr. Feelgood tour. So I did see them uh, twice on the same tour in 1989 and 1990, I saw them in December of 1989 at the Hartford Civic Center in Connecticut, and they played four songs off this album. Red Hot, Too Young to Fall in Love, Shout at the Devil, and Looks That Kill were the four that they played from on that one. And then in 1990, on June 30th, 1990, I saw them at Lake Compounds in Bristol, Connecticut. They played Red Hot, Shout at the Devil, and knock 'em dead kid for the first time since 1986. Wow. So that was a song that they had not been playing live, and they toured a shitload between 86 and 90, yeah. and they had not played knock 'em dead kid in a while. And I was extremely excited about that. Well, so, and that surprises uh, me because, as you said, like regardless of what I may think of the track, it is absolutely a track that you imagine would go down well live and have the crowd singing along, and it's got the call and response. So yeah, that's quite surprising. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, Always a good mix of four or five songs from this album, I think, in a crew set list. So, yeah. And and I will say this about Motley Crue, especially during that period of time, because Vince's voice did not hold up well as time went on. However, every time I saw Motley Crue, they put on a fantastic show. They were one of my favorite bands to go see live because they just did a great job. There was always some, like if you saw them indoors, you would see whatever crazy contraption that Tommy Lee had going on with his drum kit at the time. (laughs) And, and uh, in this tour, it wasn't the one where he was spinning in the cage. This was one where I believe he would come out and it would go out over the crowd. Like it would basically rise up and then it would come out over the crowd and he would be playing as it kind of moved around the ceiling sort of thing. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong about that, but I think that was this one. Whereas I think it was girls, girls, girl, girls, where it was the spinning cage that he had. Right. So yeah, always a good stage show. Always a lot of fun at a Motley Crue show. They definitely played to the crowd. The crowd freaking went crazy. Again, as I said, to me, sort of the poster band for the glam metal sunset strip movement for that time in a band that just totally dominated the eighties. Yeah. Well, and yeah, as I say, like they were even over here, they were big. Um, but I, yeah, managed to sort of almost completely bypass them <laughs> during that time. Uh, but Hey, you know, as I'm glad we listened to this one, like I say, this is, it's not one that's a revelation in the sense that I think like, Oh, actually this is way better than I thought. And I, you know, I could have got into this, but it is better than I expected. Um, and it is it is removed from that later era. Like another thing, talking about Vince Neil, another thing that I uh, seem to recall is that uh, on their later albums, there's a lot of double-tracked vocals, which I suspect oh, for sure. comes yeah. down to Vince Neil's performance not being quite, you know, up to scratch. Um, well, and David will will jump in the thread, I'm sure, and talk about the John Karabi. There are people, and I, I think, I don't want to speak for David, but I think he's one of them who think that their best work was with John Karabi 
and it was criminally overlooked by Motley Crue fans in general. And of course, Vince came back to the band and they released a couple more albums and then they did the, you know, the farewell tour. By that time, I had lost interest in Motley Crue. And so when Vince left the first time, I was kind of done. Right. But it's like Tim Owens all over again, isn't it? You know, it's uh, Ripper Owens. He's got his fans who you say that people overlook his era uh, with Priest as well. So... For sure. It's it's the same sort of thing. But what I was getting at was that those later albums all feel very, very slickly and kind of overproduced. Uh, what, right. I, what I've heard from them anyway, the singles that I heard from them. Um, well, and, and Vince Neil has toured uh, extensively as, as a solo career. And if I'm not mistaken, his backing band is the guys from Slaughter. They are right. his uh, okay. backing band when he goes out. But his his voice from everything that I've seen and heard is not... Not great. Now, what's interesting, and we would be remiss if I did not mention this, it was just announced like a week ago that Motley Crue is going back into the studio to record four new songs. And the reason that they're doing that is because there is a movie adaptation of the book that I mentioned oh, right, earlier, yeah. which is called it's called The Dirt Confessions of the World's Most Notorious Rock Band. There's a movie version of that, and my understanding is they're doing four new songs to go along with the release of that movie. There isn't any plans to do, uh, you know, anything else that I know of, but that was recently announced. So I was just, when I was at a show this past weekend, we were talking about, hey, did you hear Molly Cruz going back in to do four new songs? Uh, I'm interested. I'm always interested to hear what their new stuff is. But as you mentioned in later years, it was much more produced. Right. And not just Vince Neil. I mean, like the whole musically and everything was everything just felt very kind of, yeah, very slick and you know, sort of AOR friendly almost. Uh, whereas, yeah, although I did like Saints of Los Angeles. I did like that. Um, but this album is not that. And that's what I, that's what I like about it. That was for sure. what was surprisingly nice was that this album is actually quite raw. And like I say, some of the tracks frankly sound like demos and that's not a bad thing. Oh, because, th- I mean, this feels like it could have been recorded, f- you know, over the course of a week oh, of them playing shows on Sunset Strip, right, for sure. Yeah, yeah, right. Go in, go in and record a couple of songs each evening after the show. You like, totally. Yeah, yeah, which was also explained, Vince Neil's vocals, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, if you watch that, uh, that Us Festival from 1983, there's a couple songs where he sounds okay, and then there's a couple where he almost blows his vocal cords right out trying to scream, yeah, so... Yeah, not um, Hey, Trust hey. me, the Judas Priest version of that uh, uh, festival is amazing, though. Uh, maybe I should look for that, yeah. Um, but yeah, as I say, I am glad that that I listened to this. And I'm, I am glad that you chose this album as opposed to something like Dr. Feelgood or Girls, 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 just because this is a, an aspect of Motley Crue that I had not heard before. I think it is the one that if you want to really, under, although people will argue for Too Fast for Love, I, I do feel like this is one where if you're going to listen to one Motley Crue album just to understand where they were in the landscape, at this period of time, I, I feel like you have to, this is the one. Yeah. Well, this, you have this to is go the shout one that at the devil, them, isn't it? As you say, the jump of 60 places on the billboard chart, you know, it, I mean, 60 places, right? Yeah, yeah. It may not have been the most successful album in their history, but it's clearly the one that, uh, led to their breakthrough into the mainstream. I feel yeah. like it is for sure. So let's wrap this up and uh, give all our usual pointers and links. So thank you for listening, everyone. And remember, if you enjoy the show, please do spread the word, tell your friends, rate us on iTunes, uh, Google Play, podcasts, you know, wherever you listen to your podcasts, because those ratings and reviews help us appear in search results when people look for, you know, they, they help surface the podcast to other people. So it really does help. And of course, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out, as we have already mentioned. 
If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to email and mine and Brian's Twitter accounts. Or of course, you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrashitout and uh, join in the conversation there. So, homework. Yes. We have done Motley Crew. What is next? What is next is my choice. And this is the one that uh, I mentioned actually in a, a thread on Facebook that uh, I did. I would be amazed if anybody could predict. And I almost expected there to then be a slew of people trying to predict it <laughs> in that thread, uh, but they resisted. So I'm not sure if you've ever even heard of this band. So I'm going to be really interested to see what your reaction is. We are going to do an album by a band called Skyclad. Have you ever heard of them? I have heard the name, but I know nothing about them. Excellent. Right. So we are going to do their 1994 album, Prince of the Poverty Line, which was, I'm pretty sure, was their most commercially successful album. Still wasn't that commercially successful, um, but it was, you know, their their biggest hit, as it were. Uh, yeah. And I, I suspected that you... Well, I was pretty, almost, I was 100% sure you wouldn't have heard the album. I wasn't sure, yeah, whether you'd have even heard of the band. So I, I'm going to say nothing more because I want you to go into it with open ears, as it were. I can't wait. Any of our listeners out there who do know Skyclad and maybe know this album, um, yeah, you're probably having the same thoughts I am right now. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait. I, lo- I actually love when we are listening to an album that I have no frame of reference for whatsoever. And this is one of those albums. So Fantastic. I'm looking forward to diving in. All right. Brilliant. So uh, thank you for listening, everyone. We will see you again next time. Keep thrashing. Take care. So let's wrap this up uh, and go through all the usual links and pointers. Thank you for listening, everyone. Remember, if you enjoy the show, uh, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) That should be the outro.